1776. Throughout the land, people are celebrating our nation's 200th birthday. Most of these activities commemorate events in America's past. Actually, America has very deep spiritual roots. The pilgrims sought religious freedom and the chance to do God's will. The Declaration of Independence acknowledged the protection of divine providence. Religious leader from Korea is bringing America a bicentennial event of the greatest significance. In 1974, Reverend Moon proclaimed the exciting message of God's hope for mankind. More than 40,000 people crowded Madison Square Garden. Reverend Moon prays deeply. And now God's plan for America is to be revealed by Reverend Moon at the Bicentennial God Bless America Festival. I'm working on a building. I'm working on a building. I'm working on a building. Oh my Lord. Oh my Lord. This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. And today, we're going to zoom in on a group that has been getting a ton of attention, I think, both in our little parapolitical spaces, but definitely in the wider media at this time, in the summer of 2022. We are talking, of course, about the quote-unquote Moonies, the Unification Church. There's... A lot, I think, we're going to get to today about them. But uh, given the recent assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe by, I guess, a disgruntled son of a woman who had most of her wealth sort of taken or gave most of her wealth to the Unification Church, um, and so we killed Abe in revenge, you can see that, uh, I guess, it has... Uh, I think people are rediscovering that it has a lot of political relevance to today, even though many people think that the Moonies were kind of something that happened in the 70s with their mass weddings and their wacky 
Korean preacher leader and stuff, but yeah, you know, or uh, yeah, just something that's confined to uh, Asia primarily, or like is very prominent in Korea or in Japan, but doesn't mm-hmm. really have a footprint in the United States. I think is a common yes. misconception. Uh, yes, very but big as, misconception. As, as we're going to see, um, it has quite a big footprint in the United States. So yes. today we're going to get into it, but we're not just going into this alone because we have with us here an expert, I think, um, somebody who knows very well the activities of the Unification Church and somebody, I believe, uh, who was born into it and later left. Um, so we have Alisa Majub here. Alisa, are you there? I'm here. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. I I noticed you because I think you posted on Twitter saying that uh, you were available to talk to any media or podcasters or things like that about the Unification Church, giving, given everything that's happened in the last month or so. And I think Reverend Moon was always kind of on our list since we started this podcast of something we would get to one day. But mm-hmm. I think I messaged you immediately because I thought, this would be a really great opportunity. I think we we talk a lot about cults and I guess, you know, high control groups, or as some sociologists would say, new religious movements a lot on subliminal jihad. But we've actually never had, I don't think, a former member of such a group on the show. So we're very excited to, sorry, um, my neighbor's dropping like a lemon cake off on the uh, <laughs> front porch right now. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just kind of waving like, okay. Yes, but I don't think we've ever had um, somebody who grew up in one of these groups and can really speak to, uh, you know, from personal experience, what it is like to be in a group that practices what many people would call, quote, brainwashing or things like that. So we're really excited to have you here to kind of walk us through this strange and interesting and very complex world of the Moonies. And I guess maybe just to start us off, like, I, I think it might be nice to start off from your uh, personal perspective. So I don't know it, if you'd like to maybe just tell us a little bit about your background um, being born into the Unification Church and maybe your experiences growing up. And also, it might be cool to hear your process of how you realized over time that this group was kind of nefarious and, and like what led you to decide to leave it, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, well, first, I want to thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. And thanks for reaching out. Yeah, um, sure. So, yeah, I was born and raised into the Unification Church as a second generation, quote unquote, blessed child. Growing up, it it took me a while to sort of figure out that the group was nefarious. Honestly, it started happening um, when I went away to school at 14 and I was living in a different state. So I got some physical distance from the group. and. A lot of that was like just going out there um, and meeting people who are sort of in the like evil other category um, and getting to know them as people and be like, wait a second, queer people are not evil. Hold on. So like as I started to get to know people more, you know, it started dawning on me like maybe people were right about calling it a cult. You know, like we would joke about it sometimes in the group and the Moonies and be like, oh, yeah, you know, like these outsiders calling it a cult. They don't know what they're talking about. They are just, you know. They're just opposed to God and the kingdom of heaven or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they just really just don't know. Um, But, you know, Mm -hmm. it started making sense to me a little bit. I was like, well, there's some weird shit about it. I don't really know. So I went into um, 
sort of like a little bit of like a <laughs> research mode at the time. And I discovered something online uh, about something called the tragedy of the six Marys, uh, where basically uh, trigger warning here uh, for sexual assault. Moon basically raped a bunch of married women and coerced them into having sex based on the fact, quote unquote fact, um, that he would be connecting their lineage to that of God. Um, and this was this kind of was like a groundbreaking fi fact for me to find. I was like, hold on. Holy shit. Like those of us in the group are not even allowed to have sex before marriage. And this guy is just going out there and just like doing all this horrific shit. So I, I found this originally on the blog, how well do you know your moon? Uh, which I suggest to everybody, please go check that out. Um, a couple of yeah, my friends cool. run that and uh, it's just an incredible resource. So what I did initially at the time was I just like sent them a message. and was like, I need to know more about this. Can you please let me know? Um, so we talked about it for a while. Um, and then sort of fell out of touch for like 10 or 11 years, which is uh, sort of an, another story. But that sort of like got me to thinking, you know, I was like, like already I could see the way that things were for the leadership in the church were not anywhere near how it was enforced on regular everyday members. Uh, leaders could have affairs. They had a bunch of money. All the members were poor. Uh it was just such a like a huge like dichotomy there between the two and really got me to thinking. So I started like, I don't know, really doubting it around that time. And around 17, I had this huge crisis of faith where I was like, I don't even know if I believe in God, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then I ended up going to Indiana University <laughs> and I was like, you know, a horny teenager at that time. I was sort of like, let me just get out of this so I can go and have sex because that was what was important to me at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, my family had been sort of in the process of since I was like 15 or so, this is what I thought I'd wanted at the time. So I went along with it, uh, trying to get me matched and blessed to somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and at, the, at that point there was like a, a weird, like second generation sort of like website that was kind of like a proto Tinder or dating app, but like mm -hmm. your parents had to do it for you so that they wow. could like arrange the match or whatever. So I talked to a few people off of there and I was like, none of this is working out. Like one guy even came to visit. We had nothing in common. Uh, it was supremely awkward. It was like over a Thanksgiving break. I just remember my family, like the rest of my family who wasn't in the church, just sort of being like, what the fuck when he was there. And like, I was clearly not happy about it, you know? Um, so I finally decided to just sort of leave and go and live my life, lose my virginity, um, which felt like, you know, the seal in the seal in my fate, you know, at that point, um, because what the, what the church teaches basically is that you have, if you have sex outside of marriage, you have fallen and that you're now part of Satan's lineage. So I was like, let me just get this done. Mm. Um, so, I mean, the things that I think sort of led me to leaving were, yeah, the, one, that physical distance, uh, two, meeting people and getting to know them who were sort of part of that evil other quote unquote group. Um, and then learning about those sort of uh, inconsistencies in the theology and how it's practiced and enforced for those uh, in the movement. And also like talking to uh, ex-members uh, that were sort of going through the same stuff that I was uh, really made all the difference for me. And uh, that was, yeah, that's how I got out, I guess. Was there like when you decided to leave, was there any sort of pushback that you encountered? Like was your family also on board with leaving at that time or you know because i've heard some pretty like you know, awful stories of people trying to leave the unification church so uh, but was it relatively easier for you um so no my family was not happy with it at all mm -hmm. um uh, i remember when i told my dad that i had lost my virginity he told me that i was a shame upon the family mm. 
Yeah, it was it was a hard time. Honestly, I was just filled with confusion and felt like there was like really no place to go. I uh, didn't know what to do. Didn't have a support network at that time, really, for anything. Um, coming out of a high demand group like that, it's just really yeah. difficult if there's not sort of like a community to sort of help you pick up uh, your life, especially if you had grown up in that from day one, you know, because um, yeah. I didn't know any other ways of relating to the world. So I had to sort of flounder and figure it out on my own. And then I guess from the overall church, I, I just sort of like stopped going to like events and stuff and stopped like, I just, yeah, I stopped associating with people who were in the movement and stuff as much as I could. And I, I guess I personally didn't like to my face, at least receive as much shame as maybe some other people did. Mm -hmm. Um, but like there was that overarching feeling of, oh yes, they are definitely judging me and writing me off because of me leaving the movement. Um, and I'm sure had I seen more of them to the face, you know, that they would have told me that because Moonies are not really shy about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. I think really in my situation, it was more that I just never really was around them after that point. Right. Yes. And does your family remain in the church like your mother and father? Do they remain in the church now? Um, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. so my dad is super active in it. Um, so really believes everything. And my mom has always had sort of a, um, confusing and complicated relationship with the church. She was always somebody who, like, during my childhood, spoke up against all of the abuse of the leadership and, uh, like, sexual abuse of second-generation members, physical abuse, all that stuff. And she could very much see that the church was, like, full of, like, abusive people and people who were, you know, to put it lightly, pieces of shit. Mm -hmm. um, but she still believed in the theology, and she still does to this day, even though, you know, she sort of sees those inconsistencies and things um which i personally mm. kind of have a hard time uh, dealing yes, with the cognitive it seems there. strange yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah i mean it's like pretty stark like i could see that that's an aspect for i mean i think that there are some like you know there's conflicts like you know if you're catholic or something but i think that in this case like the uh the contradictions are very uh high level like they're pretty yeah. extreme like yeah uh is and it pretty much goes to the core of like some of the claims that uh you know, Moon himself makes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, or, or his wife, Hak Jahan, who still runs the Unification Church, right? Yes. She's yes. the leader today. Yeah. Now, did yeah, you, I'm, uh, my parents are under that branch, the mainline branch. Gotcha. Because yeah. I think maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later, how there's been a little bit of a schism mm -hmm. in the Unification mm -hmm. Church, particularly with the American branch led by uh, the Sun Myung Moon's youngest son, Hyung Jin or Sean, the uh, Rod of Iron Ministries, which is a whole interesting can of worms to get into. But, yes. uh, but okay, so they're still with the main. Uh, Abe's assassin, one of his statements was that he didn't want to kill like any of the, you know, any of Moon's family because like the other half of the family would just be happy about that. <laughs> so that's why. Yeah. Just, just <laughs> oh, interesting. I was wondering. Yeah. I was wondering uh, that. Um, yeah, and he had been in Japan that. recently too, right? Sean Moon. I saw a very contentious press conference. Yeah, where he was there, uh, I think last month or maybe perhaps June, I forget exactly when it was but he um there was an event that he was speaking at and he was just like berating the audience for supporting his mother basically mm -hmm. um and then it devolved in the point um of people you know like we're supporting her and like yelling out hey you're wrong she's like you know you can't stop insulting this. the true mother yeah right mm -hmm. and then they started like physically throwing people out of the room yeah. um just this like huge auditorium and there was this sort of like rush of people to the exit with like people just like grabbing people and like pushing them out 
Yeah, um, it was like mayhem. Um, it and was. I think it that was a few days before Abe's assassination, too. It so. wasn't too long before, no. So I had initially wondered if it was like related to that, honestly, uh, especially given sort of like the gun aspect. Um, exactly. I thought I, it, that clicked for me last night. Like he built a rod of iron and like yeah. went and took yeah. out, you know, he couldn't have an AR-15 because it's Japan, but he right. still built his, you know. But I guess he, you know, didn't want to give, uh, I guess, Sean allegedly did not want to give Sean Moon the satisfaction of assassinating right. his mother. Yeah, um, there was some letter he wrote to uh, like a journalist or something like that. That uh, and, it, and it, he said he basically wanted to kill the whole Moon clan. But yeah, he didn't want them to sort of like have that satisfaction or like, you know, to sort of push like or support like any, uh, you know, he didn't want that to like help any of the parts of the movement grow really. Um, but uh, to that to that effect, um, there was a time a few years ago where the same guy, Yamagami, actually, he had a Molotov cocktail and tried to get into one of Pak Jahan's speeches um, really? and was not allowed through security. So huh, I, I mean, a lot of it is still to me very suspicious. And I, you know, like yeah. there's a lot that's not really known about that at this point, I'd say. Um, yeah. A lot of people like that's have picked often, apart weird stuff about it. I mean, yeah. as we talked about in the show many times, like that's it seems like it's always the case that there was like a prior incident, like they were uh, yeah. quote unquote known to law enforcement, but you can net yeah. like yeah, but somehow in all the hubbub over the you know this incredibly significant crime that all the past gets lost and like no one remembers yeah. the fact that like the all these things happened in their record and they're they're buried underneath uh, yeah you know, all the discussion of yeah. what's going on currently. But it yeah. is interesting. I think just as we're recording this today, I think yesterday it broke that the entire Japanese cabinet or the, you know, in parliamentary terms, the whole government resigned yesterday to allegedly, I think, make some distance because I don't know, I've read a few articles that it's always t I feel like you don't get a lot of good, like direct kind of uh, news from Japan a lot of the time. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't get reported on like you just don't really hear about Japanese politics and like English language papers but some of them were saying well Yamagami's assassination almost ended up having like the intended effect that he wanted which was to shine to shine a light as we like to say mm. on the deep ties with the Japanese Unification Church and the Liberal Democratic Party that you know Shinzo Abe was like the grand old man of and I think as we can get into later like he's like a third generation politician that has deep ties to the unification church like i think both his father and his maternal grandfather who were both prime ministers by the way um had had pretty close relationships with moon and 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 so did abe himself so i guess it's caused a little bit of a i guess blowback in japanese politics where but i've also read that there are at least like four prominent ministers that are going to stick around that have deep ties to the uc so maybe this is kind of like their little bit of damage control kind of a PR reshuffling kind of thing, maybe. I think you were saying maybe it struck you as that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would I would say that, like, uh, I mean, just like sort of knowing uh, how governments sort of do their sort of like image control, like, oh, like situational management after some sort of thing sort of exposes uh, some of their corruption and shit. Like, yeah, there tends to be something like that that happens a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, oh, I also wanted to ask you, so you, you grew up in Indiana, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how big was the Unifi Unification Church community in Indiana where you were growing up? Okay. Let me think. Uh, so I, gosh, I would say there were probably, 
how can I, uh, trying to like do an approximation in my head. I'd probably say around like 60 ish people, maybe, uh, growing Mm -hmm. up people, not everybody, you know, would always go to church on Sunday or whatever, but I would say maybe around that amount, I give or take a bit, maybe, you know, um, so not, not entirely small, but definitely not large. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty intimate group, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, About 60. Yeah. And I, but I guess they were, they kind of probably, it sounds from what I've read, they have kind of smallish chapters like that all around the country. It seems. Yeah. There's uh, at least one church center in every state, if not more in some of the bigger states. Hmm. 60 mile an hour winds rip through the stadium, destroying many of the decorations. The Weather Bureau reports a coming tornado. In the midst of this chaos and confusion, an even more amazing scene takes place. Instead of running for shelter, members, their parents, and guests refuse to be defeated by the storm. This impromptu singing creates an unprecedented high spirit of unity and brotherhood all throughout the stadium. It is a united prayer, a deep-hearted petition to God for sunshine, and the prayer is answered. Thirty minutes later, almost as dramatically as the rain began, the storm ends. It is a miracle. Okay, well, maybe this is a good time to talk about, I don't know, maybe the man himself. And also, like, in your kind of journey of separating yourself, when was it that you started kind of reading and researching and looking into, like, who was this Reverend Moon guy that everybody revered so much? Yeah. Um, so after that initial bit of research when I was a teen, I stopped, I didn't, like, look into it anymore for a long time. Um, I only really started like doing the hardcore research uh, maybe a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, I was reading The Shock Doctrine and some things sort of connected to me about mm. I was it was just sort of eerie. Like I had this dream sort of where a bunch of things sort of connected in my head to me. And I woke up being like, what the absolute fuck? And I was like, I have to look into this to see if there are actually any government ties. Um <laughs> And lo and behold, (laughs) (laughs) oh, are there? I mean, (laughs) I don't know if there's any group that has more government ties than the Unification Church. It's quite staggering. And I was surprised. Like, I honestly, like, didn't know a lot of it before, like, doing research for this episode uh, and, Mm -hmm. like, reading some of the books that you recommended. But it's like, you know, just kind of like mentioning it to other people like in my life and I like come across like, you know, or when it's come up, like it's like surprising how few people like appreciate this, like, or know about it, but it's like really extensive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it goes back since like pretty much day one of the church was is like what 1953 and potentially behind that, potentially a little mm-hmm. bit before that too. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, there's so much history to it and so many avenues and so many countries and different places around the world that it's kind of, yeah, like staggering. It's just a lot. 
They are, yeah, a global kind of octopus that is sort of entangled with other octopuses uh, that some of which we've talked before, including things that really start to jump out at you, like, for example, the World Anti-Communist League, which Mm -hmm. is such a nefarious organization, but, you know, arguably one of the probably three or four driving forces behind it throughout its entire existence was Reverend Moon and the Unification Church, yeah. even coming out of, I think, the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, uh, APACL, I think, in yeah. the, even before WACL existed. And I will I will just give a shout out because I think, uh, you know, uh, the I don't know if you've ever listened to the Farm podcast. Uh, I have a little bit. They've got some really good info. He did a fan, a recluse who hosts that did a fantastic Wackle series, which I think is on his free stream. So anybody can go look it up, but subscribe to his Patreon too, because recluse is a real one. And a lot of those chapters are almost exclusively about the Moonies. So I, I started kind of mainlining a few of those episodes. And I think they just did an update about the Japanese assassination and stuff like that. They did a lot of great work, like kind of cobbling together uh, recluse and the people he had on. I think he also had an ex Moonie who has since passed yeah. away. Way. I'm forgetting his Don name Diligent. right now. Quote unquote, Don Diligent, yes. <laughs> yeah, Don Diligent, exactly, yeah. yeah. And they just, I mean, the, it really expands, I think, one's understanding of like what the, the, the UC, the Moon organization really was and puts yeah. it in like a geopolitical and a parapolitical context that I think is really like essential to understanding like the Moonies and stuff. Like, would you agree? I think, uh, I know there's like a lot of like uh, conspiracy stuff. And one of the books we read for this today is uh, a bad moon rising by the journalist, John Gorenfeld. And he re-released his book, uh, which I think came out in like 2008 and really got kind of like a dud reception from, you know, the publishing industry and the media. And he actually had a really tough time with it and kind of Mm -hmm. backed away from the subject for a long time. But I think uh, this uh, this new assassination kind of inspired him to like just release the book on his website for free. And, you know, as a resource and stuff. And yeah, um, that's an interesting aspect of Bad Moon Rising, by the way, that like he like it was kind of like pitched as like, oh, this is a conspiracy theory. Like this guy's crazy. And like he's done all this like crazy research, making all these wacky connections. Like, but they put that on him. Yeah, yeah, like they like where there's no real reason why. It should have had to be like marketed that way, like or anything like, you know, it's not like it was an established market for like uh, in the like sort of like, quote unquote, conspiracy like genre or whatever. It was just like, yeah, yeah it could have been. Uh, yeah, like, but just for whatever reason, book, they were like, yeah, like this is obviously the route we want to take to market this and that. Yeah, I think that was a big factor in like his eventual bitterness that he had about the subject. Uh, which yeah, is like exactly. very like messed up. Like what? Yeah, it's very uh, suspicious. It's actually a really interesting meta commentary because I listened to him. I think is it called the Falling Away podcast? That's also hosted Falling by out. Falling Out. That's right. Yeah. Uh, hosted by another ex Mooney, and I guess he's befriended John Gorenfeld because they're both in mm-hmm. London now. And I listened to most of uh, the first part of their episode, where I think just in the last month or so, Gorenfeld went on and he really recounted his experience of like trying to <clears throat> both first starting out as kind of like a UC Berkeley journalism graduate and being like a young like guy in his early 20s, like in the early 2000s Bush era, living in the Bay Area, like his parents' house, like trying to find 
a hot story that he could really, yeah. you know, sell. And he got, he started a blog actually, which was kind of, and it, that was the, the first era of kind of blogs, you know, in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And he started this Mooney blog and uh, got some interest in it and then decided, I think I can make this a book. And he went to this publisher. He, I think he said he used to go to Barnes and Noble and see all these books laid out, you know, on the front table that, like, I remember this era very well. I think I was in high school back then. But it was like, uh, you know, like Al Franken's like lying liars and the liars who tell them and like, you know, how Dick Cheney is picking your pocket. Like very liberal, yeah. kind of like designed to appeal to like John Kerry voter type yeah. thing. Or, you know, like why the Rathuglicans are like actually hypocrites for talking about family. I mean, I'm not trying to beat up on it too hard. But like I totally remember being like, like Gord fellows attracted to those books. I thought those books were cool when I was like 16 and like yeah bush sucks you know yeah. and so he thought that hey there's got to be there's a space in the market here because everyone's publishing these books about like how you know the the religious right is like nefarious and corrupt and hypocritical yeah. and people should be vigilant about it and uh, but then like you said call it uh when he actually you know got this publisher to like you know uh, give them a book deal and put it out there they like recast it in this like wacky conspiracy theory kind of category that he really didn't intend the book to like go on if anything he kind of held back or like in certain areas to like make it more yeah. palatable to the mainstream but instead his publisher like enthusiastically slapped this like conspiracy theory label on him so when he was going out he, he said i think on the podcast that he felt like okay i'm gonna be the guy in like the tv documentary on like history channel and it's like but not everybody thinks the moonies are in innocent yeah like, john gornfeld has dedicated his life to taking down the moon like like basically like kind of uh promoting him as kind of like a crank like wild conspiracy theory yeah, author exactly. which he was like not trying to be and and I think to this day he's still a little bit haunted by allegations of and he's very he seems to be very sensitive to being yeah. called like a conspiracy theorist or something like that, which yeah. I totally understand. And actually, this is a weird because I don't think this has ever happened on the podcast before uh, where we've covered a book from an author that I have met in real life before. So I met John Gorenfeld. In mm -hmm. 2014, when I was also a young, like, kind of wannabe writer who happened to be investigating the reason we met, and I think I talked about this in our Den episode about Brock Pierce, like, way, way back. I think I mentioned this, that when I started looking into, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Brock Pierce, the, the Bitcoin billionaire who was ensnared in, like, this strange uh, company called Den in Hollywood in the late 90s that was, like, an internet TV, like, kind of an internet MTV, but it turned out that all the founders were kind of using the company as a pretext to lure underage boys to uh, this mansion in the valley where they'd throw these parties. It's very dark. This is very dark, like Epstein mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So, fair, fair, sorry, fair content warning. It's a really kind of twisted, dark story where they were kind of luring, you know, these child actors and stuff to like star in their cool shows and then inviting them to these pool parties where there were drugs and they would invite all these VIPs, you know, big fans, you know, people. Uh, I don't I don't think uh, David Geffen, I don't want to get sued, uh, maybe was ever there, but like people like that of like that kind of power and stature. 
and then the whole company collapsed and stuff, and they fled to Marbella, Spain, the three founders, Mark Collins, Rector, Chad Shackley, and Brock Pierce, a Disney child actor. And John Gornfeld had written like an article, maybe for Radar, I think, uh, back in around the time this happened, kind of covering this whole scandal. And then in... I think around 2014, Brock Pierce had reemerged and reinvented himself as a Bitcoin entrepreneur <laughs> and somehow got himself nominated to, the, to be on the board of the Bitcoin Foundation. And that was when I first discovered this whole weird Brock Pierce thing. And I think whatever was happening, I was going through a little bit of like an ontological break like, I don't want to say breakdown, but like I call it remembers, like I was kind of in an intense headspace in 2014 because mm -hmm. suddenly like these floodgates opened for me and I started looking into this den thing. Then I started looking into the Franklin scandal in Omaha, Nebraska. And then also back then I was looking at Epstein, which nobody was taking seriously back then, but it was like, wait, what? There's this guy it has an island and holy shit. And then all these connected people are kind of in the swirl of it. So John Gorenfeld, I forget how we got in touch with each. I think I was posting on the Bitcoin forums and maybe he like reached, he like messaged me or something. And because he was on these forums because he was going to write an article uh, for a publication about trying to track down like the weird connections of like, because there were allegations that the mastermind, Mark Collins Rector, was still pulling the string somehow from like Marbella. And mm -hmm. he was actually like using Brock Pierce as a front to get into the crypto game. But like they had they had weird vibes about them where they were kind of like, uh, they seemed almost like protected, like their informants or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like despite having all these, you know, sex trafficking, pedophilia charges chasing them around. And so we corresponded for a while. And uh, eventually I, cause I was doing some kind of random research uh, as well. And we met up at like a cafe in San Francisco. And I remember it was like a very uh, a, a monumental kind of moment for me because this is like a real journalist, you know? And I remember like my main, I forget about all, we just talked about all kinds of things. Eventually his article got killed and there was like a weird other article by BuzzFeed that came out that was like, oh, we found Mark Collins Rector in Belgium, but he's really sick and old and isn't hurting anybody. So like case closed. And then <laughs> like Gorenfeld's article got killed. And I think that was around the time. I, I'm sorry. I apologize to him in advance uh, if he hates that I'm like saying any of this about him. Um, he does now but have like, you blocked on Twitter, right? For I, I, I have to mention that for some reason <laughs> he blocked me years ago on Twitter, and uh, but like I. I respect the guy, but a little sad about it. Like, I don't know why. I think what it was is he said that for a while, like he set up a filter on his website that if anybody sent him anything about Moon, it would just block it. And nice. like, I think what happened was like, because I remember that was like a kind of like JFK, like sitting in the park with Mr. X kind of thing where he's like, you don't understand. Like, I mean, John Gorville is not that, he's not like that, you know, uh, kind of conspiracy minded, but he's just like, look, man, like there are just certain things that like, people aren't like are not going to get incentivized to be reported on and these networks like I and he talked a little bit about dude I had an experience writing this book about moon and at the time I didn't really know much about moon except that he was kind of a wacky 70s cult leader but he's like no dude like he was tied into so much like crazy right-wing stuff and all these politicians are like you know kind of going to his events and bowing down to him and I try I really thought I had like a good story that could get out there 
But then just like the way everything played out, it ended up just getting marginalized as like some wacky conspiracy thing. And that had really kind of like disheartened him, I think, about just sort of, he's like, I'm going to go be a computer programmer. I don't need this shit. <laughs> like, and stuff. So he was at that point of, and then like the Brock Pierce thing was kind of the last when they like, I don't know, paid him a kill fee or whatever. And we're like, we're not going to publish it. It was like, well, okay. And I mean, he was digging up some like, I mean, he was doing real journalism work and like digging up some weird things that like probably were worth following up on, but it just, you know, it didn't come out. So I think maybe I kept, I think I, I've, I've matured, obviously, I think since 2014. And I was probably hitting him with like a bunch of emails after that were like, well, just like spitballing. Like, well, what about this network? Are they nefariously involved? <laughs> with that? I think maybe I came off to him like I was a quote unquote conspiracy theorist after a while. And he was like, I don't want to deal with any of these people. Like, I'm just going to block them. But, you know, I hold I hold no grudges. I think he wrote a great book here. And like, I think, you know, but I think also the 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 changing of maybe it's interesting to me to see that. Uh, I can understand why being labeled a conspiracy theorist, uh, being a kind of a young journalist in like the 2000s is almost like the kiss of death. I feel like even in 2014, yeah. it was a total kiss of death for having a professional career. Today's a little weird because I feel like if you want to work for the Washington Post, it still is a kiss of death. But now mm -hmm. there's kind of this ecosystem on the internet where like you could sort of have like an independent following and... I just feel like in general now, it's almost like everybody has, the, after the last five years, like everybody has a conspiracy theory, whether it's, you know, Russia rigged the 2016 elections or, you know, the, the deep state hates Trump or, you know, QAnon or like kind of go down the list. Like there's all kinds of things swirling around in our disinfo environment. And so yeah. I, I'm like... We have always, I mean, I think we've taken flack for being called conspiracy theorists for diving into these issues. But I think we've almost like made a point of like not being phased by having that label thrown at us. Because I think when you're getting, you know, to the, to talk about the something like the Unification Church, I do think like it's almost impossible to really talk about the full scope of what they were up to without delving into the waters of things that would be considered like conspiracy theory. I mean, they or, were or definitely involved in conspiracies, uh, like just <laughs> as a matter of fact. And like the, yeah. like it kind of, I think the John Gorenfeld example sort of shows how like back then perhaps it was conceivable like before, you know, some of, I mean, but I think that was after like the Wackle book and everything, right? That came out in the eighties. Am I wrong? Yeah. yeah um, so like it was even after that, but still, I don't know, but I feel like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe even today people will treat that like as being some kind of like wacky theory. But what I was going to say is that I think it attests to the fact that like sometimes things that are like wacky theories ultimately become like acknowledged as just simply being like, so that's like my thing with the conspiracy theory thing. Like conspiracies are things that happen like they're a major feature of politics people like conspiring together to achieve goals often secretly like and not in public and like that's you know simply just an aspect of of politics and it's not really like a it's a distinction without a real difference in a lot of cases where it's just kind of uses a term of abuse or a pejorative for something that's like you know conspiracy means something that's not true which mm -hmm. like is not you know it's like a yeah and i can see i i, I do see how like there's an attraction to the kind of mainstream world because I think that in the sort of conspiracy like subgenre or like in the conspiracy lane of 
like media production like it's it attracts like certain personalities and like the ground often shifts under you and like there's in the same way that if you're like trying to aspire to that wapo world there's like a uh pressure to like block dimitri or whatever i feel like if you're in the conspiracy lane <laughs> there's like a uh, pressure to like you know affirm like everyone's pet theory which like a lot of them are even contradictory so i mean i see but but i think that that like sort of pigeonholing that's like a deliberate effect of that and it causes this sort of like problem where yeah there's just like everyone kind of like lumped into this one category and set against like serious people right and yeah it's you know so i yeah i definitely understand like the sort of aversion to being uh associated with that even though like we certainly uh are um yeah yeah yeah. that's something i sort of like worry about a little bit myself just like you know people being like oh clearly you're a person who's been damaged by this group so you're gonna come up with a bunch of wacky things about it but it's like no i've read the documents though (laughs) yeah there are documents about this like this is not shit i've made up on my own you know like yeah and that's yeah. sort of sometimes how you can tell if something is a conspiracy theory or not, if there's like some sort of paper trail or a ton of circumstantial evidence that can't be ignored, which not all conspiracy theories clearly have. Yeah, um, but you know, yeah, sometimes sometimes there just is a conspiracy. True. <laughs> Quite yeah. simply. And I think, yeah, when we look at the history of Moon, it seems like from the very beginning there was clandestine you know, conspiring going on even over in Korea. So maybe I guess we can talk a little bit about the man, Sun Myung Moon. He, interestingly, I mean, this will be a huge point in his life, but he was born in what is today the DPRK, North Korea, right? And he, I guess he, he claims to have had a vision or Jesus spoke to him when he was a teenager, right? I mean, he grew up, I think, under Japanese imperial occupation, of course. I I think his parents converted to Christianity, as a lot of Koreans did. Um, And he had some kind of vision where Jesus spoke to him and said that you're going to be, you know, the the next Messiah or something. I forget it. Maybe he wasn't called the Messiah yet, but that you're basically going to be like my messenger and everything. And he... He went to college, I think, in Japan. I forget mm-hmm. he studied engineering. Yeah, so his Japanese connections kind of go back to, like, you know, his college years. And then he went back after, at the end of World War II, I believe, he went back to Korea and I think settled in Pyongyang, right? And at that time, of course, it had been that area had been liberated by the Red Army. And so Kim Il-sung's government had basically taken over, uh, established itself in the north and i i did wonder about because i think you brought up the uh, was it the tragedy of the six marys yeah yeah and so that happened in the late 1940s in pyongyang because he started a church there after the war right Mm -hmm. and then i think because a, a huge event in moon's kind of narrative is that he was arrested in north korea it i think you know, not super long before the Korean War uh, and sent to a labor camp, basically sent to a gulag where he had to haul fertilizer with his bare hands. And it was basically a death camp, et cetera, et cetera. And I think um, I've seen some people point out like a little bit, 
you know, that's one of the early kind of big stories, you know, in his life that people have questioned a little bit. Because on the one hand, he said, well, because, you know, communists are satanic and they hate God and et cetera. uh, That's why they threw me in a gulag. So I was just so popular and, you know, obviously favored by God, et cetera. But other people have said, well, no, like the DPRK authorities arrested him because he was basically running a sex cult. Yeah. Like you said, uh, in that, uh, which I think that was a book written by a, a like an early Mooney who defected kind of early as well, right? Uh, Nansa Kong? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. She, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, in Under the Shadow of the Moon, I believe is what it was called, if I'm correct. Uh, I can, yeah. can double check that. But I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, was there also a male follower who was like an early kind of disciple, but then broke off, but then he recanted in like the 90s. He like recanted the book that he published about Moon, alleging that he ran a sex cult and all that and was like, I was wrong. I just hated him because he was so popular or something like that. Kind of people speculated that he was like paid off or something. I mean, maybe he was. I don't know. Maybe. It's hard to know. In this world, it happens a lot. I'll say it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for sure. So, I mean, I thought that was a little interesting that he gets sent to, quote unquote, you know, the gulag and it's horrible. I mean, have you have you seen anything in your research to kind of doubt like his characterization of being in this prison camp? Because it, it not to say that that type of thing never happened in you know north korea but it it tracks so much with like hyper anti-communist like you know propaganda accounts of life in the dprk etc i don't know so i mean as far as i'm aware he he was in the prison camp although the reasons for it were either you know sort of the sex ring thing or i've also heard sort of rumors of potentially him being a spy for the south so it, it's not completely clear there, but I mean, certainly while he was there, it was, you know, very strenuous and ex- extremely abusive situation. Yeah, the fertilizer thing, I just, I can't even imagine how awful that would be. And then, I mean, sort of going going back a little bit too, when he was studying in Japan, apparently some of his roommates were communists and he was a communist at the time for a while. Really? And I don't know if he actually was or if he was doing spy work at that oh. point. As well. It's hard to say because uh, like, I mean, you talk, you like looking back at that time period, like nobody talked about him sort of being like really religious or anything either. Um, There was not like this, like, you know, he's God's son kind of thing at the moment. He was just, you know, going to school for engineering. Right. So there's just a lot that is not known about that time period. That is uh, stuff that I I personally want to look into. Uh, So if anybody has links, you want to send me that thing. Um, Yeah, definitely. It's just uh, sort of not very well known, you know? Interesting. And of course, you know, uh, whatever his uh, account of the story is should be 100% taken with a grain of salt because the guy has learned on multiple occasions about multiple things. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, though that sounds about right. Uh, Good rule to live by. Yeah, Yeah. so that's interesting because, you know, later he's like, oh, when I was a teenager, I, you know, got called to service by God himself. But then, you know, people that are hanging out with him in college are like, oh, he wasn't religious. So (laughs) interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty weird. And then... Mm -hmm. um. I guess so. It was MacArthur's uh, UN forces, right? That sort of like freed Hungnam Prison where he was at. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, there's a whole bunch to be said about MacArthur in the movement. Mm-hmm. But the part I, there, there are little bits and pieces after that of his story that sort of like when he left Hungnam don't really line up per se timeline wise. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like what was actually happening there? 
Interesting. No. Interesting. Yeah. I, I do see here. Yeah, I, you're right that uh, I guess this is referenced in the Washington Post obituary that he was convicted in 1947 by the North Korean government of spying for South Korea and given a five-year sentence. So, I mean, according to them, I'm sure it was a show trial or something. But, you know, according they thought he was a spy. Um, yeah. so, and there had to be a reason for that, you know. Um, I remember reading another book at one point, too, that there was, like, a woman who was in prison with him who also was, like, wondering, was he working for the Americans? So, mm. I mean... It's hard to say how far that involvement really goes back. Um, but I'm, I'm willing to uh, absolutely entertain the possibility that it was, you know, what like started maybe while he was in Japan or potentially before that. I, it's hard to say. Yeah. I well, because it's as, interesting, as we, yeah. like how, you know, I mean, in North Korea, there's an obvious aversion to like religious proselytization, even though, I mean, again, it's like very murky, like how, you know, the nature of like religious practice in North Korea, like, you know, there's a controversy over it, but it's definitely mm -hmm. like something that they perceive that there's a connection between like religious proselytization by foreigners and espionage. Uh, yes. Like they definitely feel those things to be connected, which like the majority I could of the see Americans that as having some kind of like, uh, you know, basis to it that yeah, like, yeah. you know, uh, maybe he wasn't religious, but like, the religion that he had and like perhaps him being a spy, like maybe the, like those are related, like from the beginning. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and just, oh, 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 sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, I, was, I have my, I have my suspicions about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And by the way, we've, we both visited uh, the DPRK North Korea in like 2012. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, briefly we were by no means like experts, but yeah, like we, we got to see tour. it for ourselves. Yeah. On, yeah. Like a state, you know, one of those state tours. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, they did point out, I think, a few times, like, look, like, there's a, a Christian cathedral, like, in Pyongyang, you know, right. and stuff yeah. like that, to sort of show that, like, we're not uh, basically, like, we don't, you know, viciously attack. Like, people are allowed to be religious, but at the same time, like, most of the Americans that have gotten arrested in the last, like, 10 to 20 years were always doing something like walking across the river, like, waving a Bible or Otto Warmbier, <laughs> who stayed in the same hotel as us, but then went, you know, skulking around trying to steal... Like, I don't know what he was up to, but, uh, you know, trying to steal posters and then got arrested. So they are definitely sensitive to that aspect of, like, religious people coming, which is also interesting. Maybe we'll get to later, like, the rapprochement in the 90s between Reverend Moon and Kim Il-sung and Kim yeah. Jong-il. And even Sean Moon, who I discovered on a video, went to the DPRK uh, a year before we did in 2011. Mm -hmm. And, like, there's even, like, a state TV kind of, you know, music video montage video that shows them like traveling around and going <laughs> to like True Father's home and like the prison <laughs> camp and being very like, po this is I guess right before Kim Jong-il died, but they were being very positive and there were some economic relationships yeah. that developed so, yeah. their, yep. yeah, the car, the, in fact, I, that jumped out at me and I, I can't say for sure if it's like the same company, but when we were in the DPRK in Pyongyang, like, you know, most of the posters and stuff are, uh, I, you know, I'd say popular art, some would call it state propaganda, but you know, it's like, it's, you know, paintings of like, you know, Kim or like workers or a guy bayoneting the U S Capitol or something, yeah. you know, and like, it, it's all stuff like that. But the only advertisement I saw in Pyongyang was a car advertisement and it wasn't like a, you know, Daewoo or something that I recognized. It was like some other kind of Korean car. And I wonder 
if that is the Mooney car company. Yeah, it might have been. It might have been because it, it was totally and it was like weird because it's like the only country I've ever been to where there's like not quote unquote advertisements everywhere. And that was kind of surreal. But then there was like a car company and I was like, oh, huh, interesting. Like, yeah. so maybe I don't know. OK, so he goes to to South Korea, which, of course, is uh, is pro U.S. and I think largely staffed by imperial Japanese collaborators, I think, are like most of the leaders of South Korea. Uh, even going into the Korean War. And he starts to set up his first church there, right? Like yeah. in kind of the uh, the very early 50s. And yeah, I believe it was 53 when it officially was like on the books. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, he I guess he attracts a following in Korea. Now, when does he go and start proselytizing in Japan for the first time? Uh, gosh, okay. So I think the Japanese Unification Church I think it started around time official around the same official time that the American church did. So I think maybe 59. Interesting. Okay. Cause the Japanese one, I guess we should say is by far the biggest and probably the most influential one, even bigger than the Korean, the original Korean branch. Yeah. Right. Although that wasn't always the case, right? Like it kind of started to take off. Like, uh, I mean, I guess of course it wasn't always the case. It didn't start in Japan, but it was, I think it's been surprising to people how much it's taken off in Japan. Yeah, um, absolutely. And like maintained and, uh, itself as others, because I think in America, they hit a peak maybe in the late 70s of membership. And then yeah. when Moon got thrown into jail for like tax charges, uh, it kind of and all the sort of cult backlash stuff, it, it settled down, though his financial influence did definitely did not like stop in America. Right. But the the kind of open church like proselytizing thing seems to have died down. And Korea, I mean, Korea has a lot of like spiritualist kind of sects going on. But I guess Moon was almost like the the template or the model for many that would follow afterwards. And and I guess it's interesting because at the same time, like I think by the 60s, We'll, we'll get to talking about like the two major Japanese sus lords that he got into bed with, Ryoichi Sasakawa, and uh, I'm forgetting the other guy's name right now. Uh, um, yes, Yoshio Kodama. Yeah, these two guys. Uh, he, yeah, the world's richest fascist and like the head of the Japanese Yakuza, Yakuza, he teamed up with, I think, in the early 60s. And then they entered into like very complex uh, economic and political relationships. But, you know, and then maybe the Korean one seemingly became less important. But there was always this connection between kind of elements of the Korean government and Moon, right? Yeah. Like, and, and particularly military and intelligence connections. Yes, yeah. Like uh, in the 70s, uh, the United States government did sort of this like, look into what was supposedly a Korean Central Intelligence Agency influence peddling in Washington. Um, and there was yeah. a lot at that time that was published through the House Intelligence Committee about sort of like the church's relationship with the Korean CIA, um, which is, of course, you know, a child of the American CIA. So. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Even though I think I forget which book, I don't know if it was Gorenfeld or someone else said, you know, despite the exact same name, like there, the CIA wasn't involved in the creation of the K. I was like, what? No, hold on. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Uh, um, I'm willing to bet. <laughs> no. It might have been. It might have been Gifts of Deceit. Yeah, which yeah. is uh, maybe. And that was written by the House like investigator who yeah. I think did a lot of the, the legwork uh, during the Koreagate thing yeah, to dig Robert up info. And then Bochner or something like that. Robert Bochner. Yeah. And then he, uh, like so many critics and people around the Moon organization, 
mysteriously fell to his death in yep. the mid eighties. Yeah. He fell off of a roof and, uh, I would say that that's not the only time people have fallen in the Mooney stuff. Like there was a, I mean, yeah, it's happened several times. So there, wasn't there a period at, at some point, maybe it was in the eight, the early eighties where like three prominent like moon officials all fell off of the New Yorker hotel, which moon owned. Yeah. There was a lot of it at the New Yorker specifically. <laughs> um, uh, which is the Hammerstein Ballroom, by the way. If anybody's ever gone to like a concert there, like that's owned by the Moonies. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep seeing that over and over again. Like, do you do you like ginseng? Do you like sushi? Do you like you know like he owns the 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 financial empire. This dude is like massive, right? Huge. Yes. Yeah, we haven't even gotten to Washington Times, UPI, wow. etc. But All right. okay, so at some point, eventually. Well, Sigmund Rhee is the first kind of military dictator of South Korea. But then I think Park Chung-hee kind yeah. of overthrows him in a coup. And he's one that really kind of links up with Moon, is very tight with Moon. And then, of course, there is Colonel Bohee Park, right? Yep. Who's yeah, like Moon. Sure. If anybody looks at the videos of like Madison Square Garden or any of his old speeches, he is the English translator and like right-hand man of Moon. Yeah, sort of seen as a co-leader, especially in sort of like the early days of the church. Mm -hmm. uh, guy sort of uh, was kind of the logistics guy for the movement. Mm -hmm. And he was, of course, he came from the Korean military. Yeah. And I think he was serving as a, as a defense attache at the South Korean embassy in Washington in kind of, I think, the late 50s. Uh, yeah, the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. I believe so, yeah. And um, used that. An interesting bit in the book Gifts of Deceit where it describes uh, him meeting with a bunch of these sort of like intelligence group people and then directly going right out to San Francisco where the early Mooney Church was and meeting with the members out there. Another fun thing I want to bring up about this is <laughs> I personally wonder about connections to things like MKUltra, uh, mm -hmm. given the subject material and also the time frame and the place. Um, I know a lot of those and especially like even like pre MK Ultra sort of experiments where a lot of it was focused on like Korean prisoners of war. You're right. It um, all came out of the Korean War thing. Yeah, it all came out of the Korean War and the Cold War atmosphere. Um, and so if if it were to ha if the Moonies were had been sort of like part of that, they would have been in the right place at the right time, honestly, because San Francisco late. 50s early 60s that was you know right around the time that mk ultra stuff was popping off there operation um, midnight climax the was there yeah i definitely operation yeah i definitely think that you're right because they like represent the convergence of two like big trends in mk ultra one of which yeah is the fixation with brainwashing in uh the sort of asian theater like in china and korea and in, uh and in vietnam and also with just like religious movements in general with cults. Uh, yes. Like I just feel like they hit two of those really big criteria in a very yeah. like, like, you know, standout way. And then also like they're deeply, deeply embedded with like the American intelligence apparatus. So yes. it's like, eh, yeah, I mean, and the maybe not right MKUltra per se, perhaps some like, you know, uh, analogous thing under a different name, yeah. but there's a lot of stuff going on under MKUltra. So I don't know. But yeah, yeah I yeah. think that definitely in spirit, at least, even if not in letter, although I think in letter is very likely, you're definitely correct. Um, very possible, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to yeah. say. I mean, like, I know what it was the uh, human ecology subproject that was doing like uh, sort of experiments on like, uh, 
like how a charismatic leader could affect a group and like all of these other things that would honestly sort of like directly tie into cult phenomena. Yeah, hard to say. I mean, there's I mean, and also like, you know, given the fact that most of those documents are like deleted and uh, <laughs> all that shit because mm-hmm. of what was it Richard Helms that it was just like going to get yeah, rid of all Richard that. Helms destroyed it all. <laughs> for a lot of reasons um yeah definitely fuck that guy it also reminds me a little bit i I noticed certain parallels uh in kind of like moon's early you know sort of uh origin story that kind of mirrored another person i suspect was like an mk ultra preacher which is jim jones Mm -hmm. uh, you know he he has a similar thing of like murky biography where he's like skulking around like south america for some reason hanging out with dan mitrione who plugs right into like the wackle operation condor like cia you know uh kind of phoenix program type shit around the world you know teaching people how to torture dissidents and then he comes back and like he presents himself as a christian just like kind of uh, Reverend Moon did, but like when you really peek beneath the hood, they're the type of Christianity they're selling is like such a strange mishmash that is actually like hostile to a lot of core beliefs of Christianity. Like with uh, Reverend yeah. Moon, maybe none more so than I guess. Correct me if I'm wrong, but his constant assertion that uh, Jesus was a loser, right? There, yeah, there's that, and then like his assertion that he was the Messiah himself come back because Jesus failed. Jesus so. fucked up. Yeah, he said, like, Jesus didn't build a worldly political kingdom and an economic kingdom. He was supposed to go to Rome and, like, convert everybody, but then he messed up because I guess he was too much of a hippie or something and he got crucified. And that's also why he wanted later on everybody to, like, he made a big show out of breaking crosses. Like, he would get, like, evangelical ministers who had taken money from him to, like, yeah. performatively, like, destroy their crosses because that was like yeah, a negative symbol whatever, just because it was like and the way it was explained to me as a child at the time was because uh the way my mom explained it at least was that you know well jesus died on the cross why would jesus want to be kept why would jesus want to be continually reminded of the thing that killed him kind of thing and i don't know that that was necessary i read somewhere else that there was some other sort of like rhetoric behind it from the church but that was what i got when i heard about it as a kid i, yeah. I mean i feel like that actually is kind of a good point, but it's either here nor there. Like, you know, uh, I feel like that is, I, I think there's definitely a motive of like, uh, sort of uh, feeling in competition with Jesus. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. That, yeah he, uh, is but you think would be repugnant, uh, like to, to American Christians of pretty much all stripes is that, you know, you're talking trash about Jesus. You're saying you're the Messiah. Like this feels like a little bit heretical, but time and again, people kind of cozy up to him and kind of, uh, you know, whatever, like they'll go to his events, take his money and it's kind of swept under the rug and he gets to even present himself as kind of, well, I'm just like a Christian who started a new church when it's, it's much more kind of tangled that, I mean, we could go on probably for hours about his, all of his beliefs about convex and concave stuff, his beliefs around sex and these yeah. things that come to the fore and the, the, the whole concept of like true parents, which seems yeah. pretty central. And okay. So, so Bohe Pak, I guess joined in the mid fifties and uh, started reaching out to people in the United States. I think a big coup was when he got former president Eisenhower to like take a meeting. I forget. Was it with him? Yeah, it was with moon, right? Didn't he arrange a meeting with uh, between moon and Eisenhower? maybe in the early 60s. 
I can't remember off of the top of my head. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think Gorenfeld talks about that. And then that also yeah. involved another creation of Bohipok, which was the Little Angels Children's Folk Ballet of Korea. Yeah. Which multiple books say uh, Bohipok not only used them to just provide like a fun kind of, it's almost like a Shenyun activity, honestly. Like yeah. it reminded me a lot of like Falun Gong's Shenyun. But also he said like he literally was using these like little Korean girls to like traffic and launder like cash like yeah. tons of money like he'd give them i don't know like yeah he'd give them all like ten thousand dollars each or something when they would fly mm -hmm. over to america and then they would deposit it in like uc bank accounts basically as they went around the country so yeah. you already see a kind of like prevalence of like massive money laundering going oh on. yeah that was so prevalent in the church all over the place so many different ways so many so much money and so many different avenues being uh trafficked yeah, yeah. And so he he starts to make little in they start to make little inroads with some of these mostly Republican political figures. Like I think Admiral uh Admiral Arlie Burke, I think, who was like a World War II hero or whatever. Uh he also got kind of roped into this whole kind of moon orbit and appeared at some of their events. And so they start to make like these build these delicate relationships with like American, particularly conservative politicians, because throughout all of this moon, kind of one of the, the main, I guess, defining features of the unification church is anti-communism, right? Yeah. Like elevated to a, a, mm -hmm. a total spiritual war that is going on where, you know, communism is satanic, God has anointed Moon to be the new Messiah and lead, what is it? Didn't he call Korea the third Israel? I believe so, yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. And that was where uh, basically it was going to be like the hearth of, you know, a new kind of God-led uh, revolution that would uh, triumph over communism and unite all of the world's religions uh, under yeah. Moon. And didn't it eventually just become the real Israel and like Israel had like, you know, forfeited its being Israel at, at some point. But then maybe Korea stopped being Israel, too. And he, he had a fourth Israel at some point. I forget. Yeah. I think maybe Was Japan, it the United States? It might uh, might be. It gets complicated. Um, How many Israels? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, he wants a lot, including Taiwan, kind of the Israel of the East um, that he was deeply embedded with. And you see, like, yeah, a lot of uh, synchronicities. In, yeah, he in and uh, Chiang Kai-shek both helped found the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, right? So That's right. Yeah, they were kind of two of the main founders of, like, what became Wackel. Exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah, I actually, yeah, in the book uh, Inside the League, which is really fantastic, they took a lot about the Taiwanese role kind of in all of this. And especially given, I think we just saw the last week, like Nancy Pelosi go to China and all of this kind of drama over it. And mo many people are probably being like, wait, what's the beef there? Like, why do we like kind of acknowledge Taiwan as a country, but also not? And why does China get so mad? Well, it's like when you look back at the history, uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, um, some pretty bad dudes and in very, very tight with the Unification Church. And yeah. I also didn't realize they had their very own like School of the Americas kind of to train like global death squads. So a lot of like the Contras in Latin America, in Latin American countries in like the 70s and the 80s and the Condor death squads like yeah. would go to Taiwan for training. And that was interesting because I guess Chiang Kai-shek's son actually went to um, 
I think it was Sun Yat-sen University, which was run by the Soviets. This is back, I think, like maybe right before World War II when Mao and Chiang Kai-shek were tenuous allies. So mm -hmm. like Chiang Kai-shek's son went and got like premier Soviet military education. They went back and kind of reverse engineered everything they'd learned from the Soviets and like repurposed it towards anti-communist goals. So that was... Even, yeah, it was kind of like a, the flipping it on its head and uh, adding a bunch of really sicko shit on top of that. Um, you know, torture, murder, uh, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, so then maybe we should talk for a second about the uh, the two Japanese guys that he gets wrapped up with in the 60s because mm -hmm. the, they kind of intersect with, uh, with even the stuff going on today. Maybe I'll just yeah. read, I'll, I'll read a little paragraph here, uh, summarizing it from Bad Moon Rising on 153. He says that it was in Japan that Moon had made perhaps the most impressive strides. He's talking about a 1970 meeting there. Seeing potential in Moon, the right-wing tycoon Ryuichi Sasakawa, who presided over an empire of motorboat gambling, convened a meeting near a lake in Yamanashi Prefecture, where he invited Moon to meet with him and Shirai Tameo, a youth training leader for the Yakuza, the Japanese mafia. Their discussions would lead to the formation by 1970 of a joint project combining the muscle of the mob with the feverish devotion of the Unification Church. The name was Shokyo Rango, or Victory Over Communism, and it became Japan's official chapter of the World Anti-Communist League, an international coalition also affiliated with neo-Nazis, terrorists, and various other extremists across the globe. So yeah, I mean, he 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 kind of makes this alliance with uh, Sasakawa, who is a war criminal. A lot of these guys are war criminals, honestly. They were released yeah. by MacArthur, and oh, he... Oh, go back to MacArthur. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But also back to MacArthur. Well, actually, yeah. I actually maybe. What is the the Unification Church position on MacArthur? Like, how do they I feel about him? Because oh, I mean, God. he kind of saved Moon's life, right, or whatever. He let him You're out. Right. Of so I mean, they very much think he's a very high esteem within the Moonies. Yeah. Wow, the guy who wanted to nuke uh, North Korea during the yeah. war, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just yep. twenty nukes to create a buffer zone, you know, to keep the Chinese mm -hmm. out. No big deal. Um, and I guess also MacArthur coincidentally saved the lives of these exact people and yeah. let them out of jail and allowed them to keep all their yeah. money. <laughs> right. Um, and then they connected later on and worked together. Well, that doesn't seem weird at all. It's just uh, it just all coincidences, coincidences upon coincidences. Yeah. And so he's got his motorboat gambling empire. He's aligned with the Yakuza. And I think a, a huge driving force of this, of course, was to crush the power of the Japanese Communist Party after World War II. Because in like in most countries that were liberated from fascism after World War II, typically the strongest political faction were the communists because they were the people that actually fought the fascists instead of collaborating with them. So they had a lot of clout, surprisingly, from that. And I guess they had, you know, in the state Japan was in at the end of the war, they were growing in popularity. So MacArthur naturally thought, oh shit, we can't have this going on. So I need some people, just like in South Korea, where they basically got you know, maybe getting a bunch of Japanese collaborators wasn't their first choice. It's kind of bad PR, but those are the only people that really agree to fight for you. So you got to do it. And I think in Japan, it was like the a lot of imperial war criminals and the Yakuza and yeah. these wealthy industrialists that were kind of willing to do the dirty work 
to, right. and then I think that all leads to the, basically the creation of the Liberal Democratic Party eventually. Yep. Um, yeah. Shinzo Abe's grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, mm-hmm. right in there with the Moonies. Yeah, that, that, that's, I think that's where this Abe family relationship begins is around this yeah. period. Yeah, and mm-hmm. he was, I believe, in the Liberal Democratic Party, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I was listening uh, to Recluse's latest episode talking about this, and they said, or some of the guests were saying, that basically this was almost like a uh, an American imperial decision to consolidate all the political parties into like one centrist political party that was just easier to interface and deal with. Yeah. And so that's kind of how the LDP ended up coming into existence where it had some extremely right-wing elements and like nationalist elements. And then it had some kind of like center, center right type people. And that's basically the coalition that is like governed Japan ever since world war two and very, very tight to this day with, uh, with the unification church. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's wonderful. And uh, for the record, I've been looking up, like the various uses of the different number Israels. And it seems like it just totally changes signification wildly across his different writings. So uh, like sometimes the second Israel is like Christianity itself. Sometimes it's America. And the fourth Israel, it seems like is just transcendent. It's like just whatever, like it's, you know, the great thing that's coming now there's okay. no real stable meaning of any of the israels except for the first israel being like you know i guess the original bane israel you know but, yes yeah and elisa the the moonies also had i mean his kind of theology around jewish people in general was always <laughs> a little bit like strange and complicated right yeah extremely anti-semitic yeah that's he a good word for blamed it. the jewish people for uh the holocaust uh and said it was because basically they let jesus die or something like that yes. um and then of course you know later on during some like i think what the 70s or 80s uh you know works directly and you know the wacl directly involved with Nazis. And then like specifically the Bolivian cocaine coup, uh, where there were some agents of the church who were also CIA guys. Tom Ward specifically worked with the ex quote unquote ex Nazi Klaus Barbie because no he's not just way. stopping talking Nazi. Um so yeah, to organize and make the coup happen. Um so wow. I mean there's that and then you know of course all of the Iran Contra stuff. <laughs> Oh, God, they're so deeply. I, I really didn't know they were like this deeply involved in the whole Iran-Contra network, yeah. but mm-hmm. like literally funding the death squads in Central America. Yeah, literally America. funding, uh, potentially even like training people for them and stuff. And there was like reason to believe that also almost certainly involved heavily with the drug trade and trafficking. That's um, another one that's come up yeah, a lot. And another big yeah. MK Ultra uh, interest too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you see some you see some interesting characters because we just did uh, a couple episodes about the Bahamas and things like uh, Castle Bank and Trust, which you know was kind of an infamous like tax dodging sort of vague like CA mafia connected mm-hmm. bank and all these other things. And we noticed that there were a few like bit characters in this that kind of popped up, like either connected to the Moonies or connected to Wackel. I think one uh, that 
definitely is like big in the Wackle kind of zone is uh, Lev Dobriansky, who was like the, I think he was the president of like the, whatever, the Captive Nations, you know, conference. Like he was a Ukrainian Reed Banderite uh, kind of guy who ran in these Wackle circles, particularly in the 80s when John Singlab was running everything. And he just so happened to be the ambassador to the Bahamas under Ronald Reagan in the early 80s, right when it became a huge hub for like cocaine trafficking via Carlos Leder, who I think, I don't know if he was involved in the cocaine coup itself, but he was one of Pablo Escobar's kind of business partners in the Medellin cartel and all that jazz. And, you know, Dobriansky was like, in the meantime, like hanging out with, you know, John Singlaub and all these American Security Council and Reagan administration officials. And uh, I think, even we found in one of these books we were in, I think it was in Masters of Paradise, the CA station chief was like trying to find out what was going on with uh, drug trafficking in the Bahamas. And he went to the U.S. ambassador, Lev Dobriansky, and like asked him about it. And Lev Dobriansky apparently just like scoffed at him and said, find another job. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, so like this guy, it's like pretty much like he's not even really denying it. He's just like, shut the fuck up. Like, you yeah. know, like, yeah, yeah no, no shit. We're trafficking cocaine and like laundering money. Like, what are you going to do about it? I mean, even saying that to the CIA guy, like, who the fuck are you, CIA station chief? Like, I'm doing what I want. So. I mean, the, there's a brazenness to these people. Um, also, Robert B. Anderson, who was in the Eisenhower administration, also got caught up in some weird moon-related scandals in the 80s that kind of, like, destroyed his reputation and was also yeah. involved in all kind of Bahamas, like, uh, just weird shit, like this kind of clandestine activity. <laughs> My topic tonight, as you know, is the new future of Christianity. September 18, 1974, to me and for God is the day of declaration. The chosen people of Israel waited for the coming of the Messiah. Today, we Christians are waiting for the return of the Messiah. That for a moment, we really think there is a one historical puzzle that has not been solved. You know, 2,000 years ago, prior to coming of Jesus Christ, God prepared for that one day, for 4,000 years, chosen nation of Israel, giving so many prophets. Then at the appointed hour, God fulfilled his promise, sent his son, Jesus Christ. Then what happened? History is a witness. The people rejected him, persecuted him, 
system in like the 70s and the 80s and how he became a major bankroller of like the right wing of the Republican Party. And I guess the first place to start there is with Nixon, where this is the first president where he really tries to like lobby him directly, particularly when Watergate starts going down. I think uh, Moon holds a few rallies in Washington. I forget what they were called, like Save Nixon rallies. They were also doing pro-war Vietnam rallies with like young people, I think, in the earlier 70s. Yeah, which is, you know, not surprising. You know, he he started making these kind of, uh, him and Bohee Park start kind of trying to uh, make these entrees uh, towards Nixon. And it's particularly worth noting because I think, uh, I, I don't think this is in Gorenfeld's book or maybe he he couldn't have known back then you know, some of these characters would, would uh, keep influencing politics like in big ways relatively mm-hmm. recently. But I know that he does mention uh, the Young Americans Foundation and also the Young Americans for Freedom. I actually don't know. Th- it's kind of a weird, there's a lot of acronym overlap, I think, in this whole story. Yes. But uh, the Young Americans for Freedom were like a branch of the John Birch Society, I believe. And a lot of young whippersnapper conservatives, uh, activists, uh, kind of got their start there. And some of them ended up in the Nixon administration. One in particular is Roger Stone, who, of course, you know, has gone on to be like a weird consigliere to Donald Trump, mm-hmm. is very good friends and a kind of a co-disinformationist with Alex Jones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just wrapped up in all kinds of bullshit, like to this day. So I think that's maybe when he encountered the Mooney influence uh, for the first time. And I think they arranged, they were trying to like bribe Nixon, I think. I forget the exact details of it, but there's a lot of like meddling around. And also this is the time, right, when Moon's popularity is kind of like exploding across the United States. Yeah. And Elisa, I don't know, like did your parents, like when did they... Uh, meet or get married and or when did they come into was it during the 70s period uh i believe it was the 80s okay okay because this is like what most people like if i ask my parents about it they're like oh yeah the moonies like i remember them from the 70s they'd hang out at airports and sell flowers right wouldn't they do those big mass wedding ceremonies and yeah that's like where that's where i think they started hitting the news and People kind of, st- and then of course, Korea Gate in from like seventy six to seventy eight, where I think it was Tongsun Park, who was a Korean socialite in Washington D.C., was hosting all these parties and giving out all these like fancy like free trips and 
I don't know, luxury goods and stuff to like various Congress people to kind of bribe them on. It was kind of framed as like this is a sinister like Korean intelligence operation yeah. to like bribe um, almost not that dissimilar from like maybe how APAC would operate mm-hmm. or other or like the Saudis, like a lobby like that that has like deep pockets yeah. and is hobnobbing with like very socially prominent people and kind of trying to seduce various politicians to like vote certain ways on yeah you know korea related issues but i think it even goes like that's the part a little part that got to the surface but i think you know all these books about moon you know say that there was like there was much deeper stuff going on that they really didn't kind of fully get to like uh put out to the light of day yeah and I, I think they destroyed one of the senators who was like the leader of kind of the the Senate inquiry into it. Bohi Pak had like a very famous congressional testimony where he like cried and like yelled at the senators and said they were serving Satan and all these kind of things. There's still a movie you can find on it um, that was produced by the, the Unification Church that kind of celebrates his brave testimony, mm-hmm. you know, to the Senate. And then the senator who went up against him, like narrowly lost his primary uh, the next time around because I think the Moonies like flooded his primary race with information that he was like might be a KGB agent. Of course they do that. And this guy was like a Republican, I think, so it was kind of funny. (laughs) And they like narrowly beat it and then all of them were like, see, see what happens when you go against God. Like (laughs) that's divine punishment for, you know, challenging whatever. So... Yeah, but then, you know, as the 70s go on and the early 80s, like, there's a whole generation of, like, younger Republicans and also, like, really sus, just, like, older right-wing conservative figures that you'd almost be surprised to find out that they had a a not-so-small moony push earlier in their careers. You know, people... People with very recognizable names, like, for example, uh, for example, Grover Norquist, the anti-tax crusader who was, like, very influential in, like, the Reagan-Bush years, you know, said he wanted government to be so small that you can, like, drag it into the bathtub and drown it or something, you know? So one of these, like, psycho, like, right-wing, like, free market wonks that, you know, sort of informally advised all these different Republican administrations. But I guess, uh, well, for one, he was palling around with Jack Abramoff in his early 20s doing weird things for the college Republicans. You know, he would go on to go to prison for like that lobbying scandal in the Bush years. And he he was doing weird things with like Native American reservations, like money laundering, just all kinds of weird, weird things. And I think Grover Norquist, he, let's see, he fiercely denied ever taking money from Reverend Moon. Uh, Gorenfeld writes Norquist 26 and his friend Jack Abramoff 24 had been accused by Representative Jim Leach, Republican of Iowa, of having, quote, solicited and received funds for the college Republicans from an inappropriate source, the Lord of the Second Advent, whose malnourished fundraisers chanted Smash Satan as they drove through the night to their next flower sale, who that very week, defiant over conviction of felony tax evasion, had summoned a worshipful audience to New York to joke that he had broken free of the American melting pot, Quote, instead of America melting Reverend Moon, America is being melted by him and proclaim himself, quote, the elder statesman in the land of darkness emerging in the new morning light. 
So Norquist said, those are lies. You're saying we took money and we didn't. It's not just a lie. It's charging us with a federal crime. Okay. But so in 1983, Norquist and Abramoff, Abramoff were part of a new wave of Republicans, the movement conservatives, struggling for control of the GOP. Figures of the old guard, including Representative Jim Leach and his think tank, the Ripon Society, urged caution at the new politics of God, gays, abortion, and trickle-down economics. Fancy that. <laughs> they warned that the new faction was r ripping up the pre-1964 roots of the party, and Norquist and Abramoff were not the only revolutionaries accused by Leach of befriending the elder statesman Moon. So I guess, yeah, there were many such people um, who were involved, particularly in, like, I think Richard, Richard Vigory. Yeah, yeah. Was talked about a lot, who built like the direct mail empire for the Republican Party that had played a big part in like getting Reagan, you know, basically onto the national stage and get him nominated and winning president. I guess like this is a very shady operation where probably like 90% of the money went to like operating costs naturally. Mm -hmm. um, but he was actually using like big mainframe computers way before anybody else was like using computers for like politicking, you know, yeah. like it, it sort of remind. I think Gorenfeld compares it to kind of like the move on.org kind of of the 2000s or like the Obama campaign in 2008, like the conservatives, the really right wing conservatives were the first to do this by like doing these just huge direct mail operations to like, you know, Christian conservative people all around the country, you know, using very manipulative. I mean, it's just like Facebook ads or anything else today, like using very manipulative, hysterical kind of, you know, little newsletter things to get you to send money to this or that cause. And he got uh, this guy, Vigory, ended up kind of getting tangled up with the Moonies. Do you know exactly you've read about him before, right? I have. Yeah, a bit. Yes, yes. I'm yeah, I'm just trying to look through my highlights right yeah. now. He oh yeah, a conservative digest he was associated with and also he was kind of associated with with the reconstructionist movement created by the American dominionist philosopher RJ Rushdoony. Mm -hmm who yeah. promoted a return to the ancient laws of Moses and Christian separatist communities where the wicked might even face stoning. So, yeah, uh, this is kind of, yeah, Lofton was one of these guys um, who he was ever on the prowl for heresy, one colleague remembered, reprimanding an, irre an irreverent staffer, quote, Satan is real. You know, we've said that before, but I don't think we mean it how he means it. Yeah. This, oh, this is funny, actually. He was also a considerably entertaining personality who had asked beat poet Allen Ginsberg to his face if his mind had been destroyed by madness, as per his famous poem. One night in 1986 on CNN's Crossfire, musician Frank Zappa looked incredulous when the nerdy little man from the Moon Press earnestly pled for the cavalry of government censors to ride in and rescue Americans from Prince's dirty song, Sister. Kiss my ass, Zappa told Lofton. The next year, I don't Lofton, know. They're starting to sound cool. I think you need to move on from this part. Uh, they advocated <laughs> Satan being real. They uh, insulted Alan Ginsberg and Frank Zappa. Um, I did like, have to highlight. Like, get, move on. Move on. Yeah, I know. I know. We're, we we we're talked before to about both. Them. Uh, you're right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. We talked before about the the MK Ultra connections of both Frank Zappa and Alan Ginsberg. So it's an interesting scenario that he that this guy. Let me see. Lofton. I believe Lofton ended up working for the Washington Times. 
yeah, John Lofton, who became a wa- so he was a close associate of uh, Richard Vigory. He was a Washington Times columnist and a radical Reconstructionist who threatened to withdraw support from Reagan if he proved not a true conservative. So this guy's like to the well to the right of Reagan, working for the Moon newspaper and going on these highly publicized like media battles with Frank Zappa and like Allen Ginsberg, who that kind of it, it echoes to me maybe a little bit like I don't know. Um, Elisa, if you've ever watched these videos, but like during the so-called satanic panic of the late 80s, when people like Geraldo and Oprah would be having on like people that claim that there's satanic cults everywhere. And uh, in particular, a few times they had on this guy, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. Oh, you know, fuck this, that guy. <laughs> the that, mind exactly. Guy. Fuck the mind war guy. We've done okay. a lot of episodes. We've maybe dug more into Michael Aquino than like anybody else like on the show. And he's a like eternal enemy of the podcast. And, uh, you know, so he went on very publicly in the 80s on Oprah and Geraldo dressed up like in his like goofy temple of set, like all black, like Dracula outfit with his big, you know, inverted pentagram pendant and his, his spooky wife, Lilith. And, you know, we're kind of sent there to be like, in some cases, you know, acknowledging that you're like a lieutenant colonel in the army. And, you know, it's like, yes, well, the army has known about my religion for many years and they find no problem with it. And, you know, kind of just doing this weird thing, but then also getting on people that maybe uh, claim that they were, they witnessed human sacrifices in the Church of Satan. And then also this guy, this FBI guy, Ted Gunderson, who became a big kind of conspiracy culture dude in the, particularly in the 90s, going around usually to different churches and giving like lectures on the you know, satanic evil underground that is embedded within the CIA and the FBI and these cults that go around and they kidnap children en masse. And it's all part of a new world order agenda kind of thing, almost, you know, kind of syncing up with like early Alex Jones kind of stuff. And I mean, it's tough for us because like we, I think we both believe like on the show that, um, that because we know about things like MKUltra and the manipulation of cults, it's not, inherently crazy to us that there was some kind of weird satanic abuse going on in the 80s in certain places and that you know to some extent maybe the mass i guess you could say hysteria or concern about it like maybe came from a place of like some of this is real and there there are books like by ross chait called the witch hunt narrative that are very like serious and basically sketch out how a lot of it was real. And then later the media kind of shit canned all of it into being like, that was a evangelical overreaction kind of thing. And they even trotted out people like Frank Zappa to be like, man, like music doesn't influence kids like worship the devil, like get real and stuff. And, and they, they would create these kind of battles of like, Basically, it was always like evangelical Christians, like moral majority, probably like love wackle type people. And then like Michael Aquino, the U.S. Army PSYOP officer Satanist, who is kind of representing the libertarian, you know, First Amendment kind of, you know, I just have an unusual religion and people persecute me. But he was, of course, uh, accused of molesting children at the Presidio Army base in the late 80s. 
uh, which the army refused to clear him of. It kind of ended his career. So he was fighting that simultaneously as well. And we've just, we've become, to, we've kind of always hypothesized on the show, like talking about it, that it almost feels like there's a little bit of like pro wrestling staging going oh, on yeah. with this kind of stuff, you know? And, and it seems like this might fit into it too, where you have this arch conservative Washington Times guy funded by the Moonies going and like fighting with Frank Zappa about evil satanic prince lyrics and stuff, and it's like no matter what side you kind of choose, there. I mean, Frank Zappa also around the same period. He went to Czechoslovakia in 1990. He was awarded like the title of honorary culture ambassador by Václav Havel, and he gave a speech saying, "I came to Czechoslovakia to watch communism die." Yeah. So, also kind of a right winger kind of personality as well. Yeah. But then people kind of code him as liberal, or they. Maybe people even code Michael Aquino as kind of liberal or that's the guy that I'm going to kind of trust as opposed to these crazy Christians. And it just feels like it's all managed so that no matter what the takeaway is, it supports like more like right wing shit. Right. <laughs> like basically. And the funny thing about that, too, is that like if you actually look sort of at the history, there seems to be a lot of sort of this like a lot of cooperation and work together between some of these more like fundamentalist Christian groups and sort of like these like theosophy kind of groups too mm, yeah so, like oh, for sure they're more or less on the same page and have a lot in common at the end of the day um even though they you know they're doing these sort of like public back and forth battles and shit just to sort of like you know do whatever um but there's actually a couple of interesting excerpts from um a book that i have not been able to get my hands on but i have found a few uh screenshots from uh, miles copeland's the game player um, oh that is a hard book to find i need I've to find for it, it. It's hard. It's like one of those like $800 on Amazon type books. Like it's ridiculous. It's crazy. But like, yeah, so there are a couple, let me find these screenshots. Uh, Because one of them sort of goes into a little bit of sort of like the cult phenomena thing. And, um, oh gosh, where are they? And there we go with the overlap of the music industry and intelligence again. Yeah. (laughs) His sons, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it sort of goes into like how the CIA had a bunch of different cults like Scientology, uh, Moral Rearmament, which is pretty much proto Moonies. (laughs) Um, uh, Frank Buckman, that whole Buckman group kind of or the Oxford group movement. Um, But one of the things here that they say uh, let's see, it says General Uncle Arthur Ankara staged his coup d'etat, and some months later, when a computer reprogrammed to make astrological computations induced President Sukarno of Indonesia to make various moves which suited our purposes. But the arrangements we made with moral rearmament gave us useful secret channels right into the minds of leaders, not only in Africa and Asia, but also in Europe. When Bob made similar arrangements with Scientology, the brainchild of another nut, this one a science fiction writer named Rob Hubbard, we were on our way to having a political action capability which would make the highly expensive, largely ineffective, and largely overt covert action of Bill Casey CIA seem trivial by comparison. And then this quote, MRA will hit him high and the Church of Scientology will hit him low, Bob liked to boast. And he was right. And so, I mean, like, they they kind of had their, their hands in sort of, like, all of these different cult movements, including sort of, like, more of that satanic, satanic like, theosophy kind of shit, uh, which just kind of goes yeah. into sort of, like, the Nazi shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it all kind of spirals back. Like, it, it eventually interlocks yeah. back to, like, some weird esoteric fascist shit. Like, yeah. even if you go into, like, Esalen and, like, that New Age movement or, like, the Nine channeling group where all these, like, mm-hmm. you know, billionaire heirs and heiresses were sitting around with, like, Gene Roddenberry 
like channeling spirit, like literally channeling messages from Nordic ET, like the Nordic ETs that created us, of course, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, the 12 foot tall, blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, God yeah. aliens uh, and stuff. And they were involved with doing weird exchanges with like Soviet scientists at Esalen that, yeah. you know, there's always a joke. I don't know if it's literally true that like Boris Yeltsin <clears throat> was recruited to like destroy the Soviet Union in an Esalen hot tub on like LSD you know, kind of thing. But he was he was brought here on Esalen trips and stuff. And like, obviously, they worked on him and, and everything. And it's just like all these networks kind of they do they come at it from different angles. And by the way, Oprah is like super fucking Esalen out and like really into all that new agey shit. And you, it's like, OK, you just happen to have Michael Aquino on your show. Yeah. And John and- Lofton, too. Right. Uh, to argue about gay marriage, I think. Um, oh, right. Right. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she staged another little kind of like dialectical maneuver there, I guess. But I was just reading John Lofton's interview with uh, Allen Ginsberg, and I think it's uh, kind of rich that they tried to portray uh, Allen, like you know, him as coming off better than Allen Ginsberg in that interview. Because uh, let's just say that someone's uh, proclivity for uh, boys of a certain age uh, comes oh, up. Uh, he doesn't acquit Here himself we super well, <laughs> but I mean. You know, I do think it's interesting that, yeah, you're right, like, in terms of the, like, doctrine and also, like, the sort of authority structure, um, I mean, theosophy is, like, very different, like, you know, it's uh, a bit more open, like, it's not really, it doesn't really have, like, a a leader figure, Uh, it's kind of like, you know, Blavatsky's writings, and then, like, people took them off different directions and everything, but the sort of, yeah, the ideas that you see in things like Urantia, like, the, I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's it's very uh, promiscuous where, like, it seems like Moon actually has, like, some kind of, like, weird, like, seed line type beliefs where there's, like, two lineages, like a satanic lineage, as you mentioned, and a, a god lineage or an Adamic lineage, which is, like, uh, you see that in a lot of, like, white supremacist uh, yeah, groups, like, yeah. He, he does uh, talk about that a lot, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's similar to the kind of like it's like Lucifer, kind of like the the image of Lucifer that you see in, uh, well, I guess in Raelianism, Satan, Lucifer, different or whatever, uh, and things like that. But Lucifer like has sex with Eve, I think, in yeah. uh, the Unification Church doctrine, right? Like that's the actual original sin that they have yeah. sex. And then um, she brings it with Adam and fucks everything up because fuck women, I guess. That seems uh, to be, yeah. yeah yes. under, and, and, and he uses that as a guilt trip as well. And like Lucifer you, is like God's son too. Like God yeah. and, and yeah, God has two children, Adam and Lucifer, and I guess Jesus too, and maybe Moon, which is again, like giving me Raelian vibes. But yeah, I mean, it is like the thing that I find to be very interesting is that like these groups are like literally like that guy, John Lofton, who like by all appearances anyway, and like I assume that like, he, he seems like a pretty sincere, like, Bible-believing, like, you know, American, like, mainline, like, you know, born-again type. Like, yeah, like a born-again Christian. But the, like, Washington Times is owned by this guy who's, like, he's literally working for and enriching someone whose, like, ideas are, you know, you could almost, like, more, like, at odds with Christianity than, like, whatever Frank Zappa, like, believes in, like, just straight-up total blatant heresy and yeah. at least frank zapp is just rejecting all of it or something you know uh or being obscene whereas this guy's like directly attacking and like trying to you know he's kind of like an an antichrist figure you know in the sense that they're like could be you know like a not that he is the antichrist but like in that kind of mold of like a false prophet you know which generally you would think someone like that would hold in higher you know, like or you know greater contempt than you know, just any like random dude who's like an asshole or whatever. You would think, yeah. but then, you know, when you those th- money's yeah. 
But then the money comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boy, did it come in, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. even I think, uh, I don't know if it, yeah, I think it was Vigory who said, yeah, Gordonfeld actually claims, you know, in this section that in the kind of years of like the 70s, like the time between Barry Goldwater losing and like the election of Ronald Reagan, it was at various points a kind of still a challenging time for like the far right conservatives to get their message out, you know, get money, all these things. And I guess the direct mailing had a lot to do with that. He said in an interview, the letters allowed us to bypass the monopoly of Walter Cronkite and the gatekeepers out there, Vigory said in a C-SPAN interview, and go right to people's homes. So that's what built the conservative movement in the 60s and 70s. On the dinosaur mainframe computers of the 70s at his center in Virginia, his software crunched the mailing list and showered red state Americans with direct mail appeals. Besides appealing to their distaste for communism and taxes, he harnessed public unhappiness at gays in schools, dead fetuses, sex on television, and gun control but by 19 it sound familiar but by 1986 he was a victim of his own success after reagan's 1984 trouncing of walter mondale warnings that the liberals are coming were a harder sell funds dried up in his world carter clues a former communications director for the senate republican conference committee was perhaps exaggerating the importance of the unification church a former client of his when he told the seattle times quote if it hadn't been for Reverend Moon and his dedicated cadre, the conservative movement would have dried up and blown away during those lean years. So yeah, I mean that's a pretty that's a pretty strong statement to make yeah. that he kept this movement like incubating and like alive basically during years when uh, you know they were not getting necessary. I mean, I guess they had yet to sort of cobble together like a new operating coalition in the Republican Party that eventually would emerge like yeah. after the Reagan years because uh, they still had kind of these Rockefeller Republicans and maybe some other stray tendencies, you know, going on that weren't fully down with the it's easy to forget how like we all just accept the sort of Reaganite like that's half of our political system now. But that was even seen as kind of distasteful by like some Republicans like back then, not to give them too much credit, but like these more kind of like moderate Republicans, like didn't want it to go in that direction. But then these guys eventually won out with like a, an absolute like tsunami of like, I mean, we've seen an even more recent example of that happen. (laughs) Like, uh, where, yeah, sure. Yeah. Everyone was never Trump, you know, Well, funny. It's cause it's the Bushes that got kind of kicked out. Exactly. The Bushes were the ones that got in bed with moon in the first place. They were very, very yeah. tight with him. Now who's going um, to the, what you call it, festival? What, what, what's the thing like the new... The Freedom Festival. Freedom Festival, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you got Steve Bannon. You got uh, like these uh, these conservative, you know, revolutionaries basically. But yeah. they're, they're kind of the same old thing if you really look at it. So yeah, I mean, the Washington Times, he buys that in the very early 80s. And that ends up being like both like the biggest uh, kind of beachhead for Moon, I think, in like American politics, because I guess whatever paper they bought was like failing and Washington was sort of becoming like a one paper town with just the Washington Post kind of as the main sort of centrist liberal newspaper. Mm -hmm. So the conservatives wanted their own response to that and it materialized in the form of the Washington Times, which was like, Lock, stock, and barrel owned by Moon's organization, right? Yeah. 
And uh, Reagan used to claim it was his favorite paper that he would read every morning. So Oh, he loved it. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was a huge booster of it. Oh, yeah. um, e- even though hilariously, I think it like has lost money its entire existence. I, as far as I know, like I think yeah. I saw an article maybe from like 2015 and was like, Washington Times like finally turns a quarterly profit, <laughs> you know, after like 25 years or more. Um, but, you know, th- I think they they established kind of a strategy of paying a ton of money for like sort of name talent yeah. to be columnists and editors and stuff uh, to sort of lend them credibility and then using like the subsidized, very cheap labor of actual like Moonies um, yeah. to do a lot of the the grunt work and things like that. I know I was talking to um, an ex-first generation who sort of was working for the Washington Times at sort of the outset of when Moon got it. And he said that they asked everybody to take like a minimum wage, basically. Um, and he originally was like, yes. And he was like, no, <laughs> I'm going to actually not do that. And they ended up giving him more, I guess. But um, mm. yeah, they encouraged members to like take the least possible money that they possibly could. And of course, you know, then there's just the whole like aspect of labor trafficking that the Moonies do and how that sort of relates into that. And a lot of people just not paid at all for their labor. Jeez. And yet they still lost money, which is kind of shocking. Yeah. It's uh, very weird, but I guess they got who did they, they they got a couple very colorful characters to be kind of the editors. Uh, the one Arnaud that Borschgrave, Arnaud de Borschgrave. Yeah. Oh boy, does he set off some red flags with me? Ooh, yeah. um, what is he a Belgian like noble? I'm not positive actually what exactly his background was before that. I it, believe he, that, yeah something like that. Yeah, Arnaud Charles Paul Marie Philippe de Borschgrave is his full name. Um, he was born into the de Borchgrave d'Altena family, which is a noble family from Belgium. He was the son of Belgian Count Baudouin de Borchgrave d'Altena, later head of military intelligence for the Belgian government in exile during World War II. Oh, wow. Weird. Wow, weird. Okay. That comes up. So that's that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Right? Yeah, no, that doesn't matter at all. Um, but I guess his wife, his, yeah, his mother was British and his uh, his maternal grandfather was Major General Sir Charles Townshend and his French wife, Alice Kain Danver, who was famously painted alongside her sister in Renoir's Pink and Blue. Well, he, I mean, he had like, there's so many counts in his family. Uh, yeah. The Count uh, Louis Kain Danver, a prominent French banker, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there's even, uh, I don't are you familiar with the group Le Cirque, Le Cercle? A little bit. Have you heard of that? I know Recluse has talked about them a lot. They're a very interesting kind of secret society, kind of French secret society network that a lot of these same American conservative types were plugged in with. Um, I think Bill Casey was a member. It also kind of gives me a little bit of like, well, it jumps out at me a little bit because are you familiar with the Detroux scandal in Belgium? I'm not. That was... Uh, we we got to do a whole thing on it one day, but that was a very shocking and disturbing uh, scandal that came out in the 90s in Belgium where a variety of, I think there was a serial killer who was arrested and uh, Mark Dutroux, and he started telling the police that he was basically like a kind of a guy who was hired by very wealthy and powerful people, including nobles and royalty in Belgium to uh, like kidnap people to be, turned into sexual slaves or murdered or both. And like really, I mean, they, they've interviewed, it, I think it caused the entire Belgian government to resign 
like after protests in the 90s, but you never hear about it. But it was almost like a, a mega Epstein type scandal in Belgium. And of course, Belgium is the home of NATO and is tight, you know, has a royal family and they're tight with the British and everything. So uh, it, it seems, you know, there were there were allegations from victims that, you know, uh, came out about kind of like most dangerous game type things being played on country estates of Belgian royals, like fox hunting, but hunting people, mm-hmm. like about the most disturbing shit you could imagine. Yeah. And so when I, I see this guy come over from Belgium with this kind of background and these ultra right wing politics, basically working for the Moonies, like lending them credibility and all this stuff and hobnobbing with all kinds of interesting, strange people also senior advisor for CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, kind of a very powerful and sometimes sus uh, think tank. You know, it, it does make me wonder, like, I don't think his name ever came up in anything like that, but ugh, that's the milieu he basically comes from. And uh, he also appeared as himself uh, in a 1984 U.S. information agency report entitled Soviet Active Measures. So, yeah, there you go again. A lot of these guys, I do see a pattern of projecting going on in their freaking out about KGB people doing this and that when, in fact, they are the ones that are conspiring and manipulating like democratic institutions at every turn. So yeah, so Washington Times becomes the conservative paper of record in the 1980s. Reagan loves it. There are all these people that go to work there, including one of the women who worked there ended up, I think, getting nominated by George W. Bush in the 2000s for like the UN um, World Food Program. Mm. I think, yeah, I, I'm forgetting her name right now, but she, I mean, she was an actual Mooney. She was yeah. in the church. So there were just people like that going in and out. I don't know. I mean, have you looked into the Washington Times and kind of like what they were up to in yeah. it? Or is there anything else that like maybe we should know about like what the Washington Times kind of uh, got up to? Um, Let's see. Other than, you know, just like outright supporting all this fascist stuff in the U.S., uh, I guess I'd also point towards, you know, like, the current sort of, what is it? I forget if it's Newsweek or... Uh, Newsday, like, I think. What, whatever it is that is, like, sort of the branched off, uh, but the ex Mooney slash guy who has his own kind of cult now, David Jang, I think. Oh, I okay. Or is it, it's either Newsday or Newsmax, I think. It might be Newsmax, yeah. Sorry, okay, Newsday yeah. is, yeah, I was like, what? Yeah. Really? Newsday? Uh, so I feel like it must be Newsmax. Uh, <laughs> I, Newsmax but I hope yeah. I'm, yeah, I mean, unless I'm right. Yeah, Newsday. No, they're, is like they're pretty... big and like, like, they're kind of MAGA news outlet these yeah. days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Newsmax. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that guy, uh, the guy, he used to be Mooney, and then he decided, I'm going to start my own cult. So, wow. yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's still very much in line with everything that's going on currently, I guess. It's amazing, like, how this is, like, tolerated. And, like, yeah, the thing with, like, yeah, the whole, like, the deep, deep penetration of, like, the Mooney stuff into, I mean, I guess... Why should you be surprised? Because, like, they obviously don't have, like, real principles or anything, but it's really amazing with the deep, deep penetration of, like, Sean Moon and figures like that into that whole, like, universe of, like, you know, these supposedly, I don't know. I mean, I guess that maybe they don't have religious principles per se. It's mostly just, like, pure reaction, a lot of them. Yeah. Um, so, 
in the, from that perspective but it's still like kind of like the, especially like i feel like lately it's taken on like kind of like a religious tenor with like the sort of like oh we're christian nationalists now or whatever and like the sort of astroturfing of like we're gonna return to catholicism and stuff like that that like you've been sort of seeing yeah. uh in some yeah, quarters, yeah there's like, a lot of that it's weird yeah it's weird that like there's still like this huge uh presence of like the unification church in this ecosystem yeah. Like just giant, giant influence. Um, yeah. Like what? All right. Okay. And and the tendency <laughs> of people to take the money and kind of act like it's no big deal, especially when it's like people that if they did anything else, I feel like the liberal media would jump all over them right. and point out how crazy and ridiculous it is. For some reason, it's just like John Gordonfeld's experience with his book. Liberals have this like allergy to noticing that this is like significant. Right. And they're just like, well, it's just like, I mean, maybe it's a thing of thinking that all evangelical mega preachers who have political connections are like wacky and sus and stupid. Like, you know, Jerry Falwell. And they love to Pat point out their hip- hypocrisy like in every other domain. Like, they think that's the, like, the most cool thing to do is to be like, actually, the Bible says like this. So, ha. Huh. Like, you know, but then <laughs> when there's like, oh, you know, you're literally working for someone who believes that Jesus was a failure. <laughs> Right. Uh, like you hate Muslims, but yeah. you know, if you, you're literally working, you're an employee, like, and you're going to go speak at events put on by this dude who believes that Jesus was like a, you know, complete bitter failure because he didn't have a family, which is like the, yeah. you know, in terms of Catholics, I feel like that's kind of like a big principle of theirs that like it's virtuous to not have a family from a certain perspective. Yeah. So if you're a priest, yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know. It's just like weird. You know, you'd think that that would be like called out or that like someone would, there'd be some like reckoning over it, but I don't know. It just like kind of slips under the radar. I guess it's, we're still in the era of like, it's wacky, you know, just like this crazy idea that this matters. You I feel know? like liberals just too often lack context about anything that they're not really able to put two and two together in a lot of cases where it's just like, for sure. This should be obvious, but it's just not. Yeah, that that's a th- that's why it almost like shocks me when in, people say like, "Oh, you should you know tell a story about you know the Moonies," but like, don't make it all conspiracy. It's like <laughs> I can't read like a book about Wackle without it being like a really sinister, evil conspiracy. Yeah. So like, how can you possibly like wrap you? I feel like if you're trying to go in it with that kind of mentality, you're going to end up kind of minimizing maybe, or just like really not seeing those two and two connections, like that are staring you in the face the entire time. Like Pac straight up said in an interview about the Washington times, it is a total war, basically a war of ideas, war of mind. The battlefield is the human mind. This is where the battle is fought. So in this war, the entire thing will be mobilized. Political means, social means, economical means, and propagandistic means. And basically trying to take over the other person's mind. This is what the Third World War is all about. The war of ideology. So he's basically like quoting mind war practically. Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, And also I think like, you know, this is something that I wanted to ask you about, Elisa, is like, Mm -hmm. how do you see the kind of like ideological penetration of like a lot of these ideas? Because to me, yeah, that resembles like, you know, a psychological operations program, but also like a psychological operations strategy. But it also resembles like a lot of like the like politics is downstream from culture and like the whole idea of info war or something like that, that you see like having such heavy, like such prominence in right-wing discord like steve bannon for instance being like we gotta mobilize like game or get or like whatever like some kind of bullshit like that like when he was working at breitbart like the whole idea of like you know and even andrew breitbart's idea of like 
war you know like you see the the prominence of this like coming up and like the idea like meme war like all that yeah. stuff like, yeah, coming yeah, out, even like, coming out of 4chan, that nest of like, you know, psyops and stuff. Yes. Yeah. So, like, yeah, that's like, it's, that's an interesting aspect of this to me is like the kind of, you know, again, because their influence is so like occulted and so sort of written off. Like, you know, I think that to Dimitri's earlier point, I feel like what is kind of like when people, are like looking into these groups like what they want or what the appetite is for for some reason it was like crazy stories about the wacky things they do and believe not how they like laundered money to fund like bloodthirsty contras uh <laughs> like to murder a bunch of people and like determine the political destiny of like a sovereign country or something you know so Including yeah our own like yeah know, exactly of, like he's um, violating the law doing most of this stuff the foreign corrupt practices act is like you have to register as a foreign business, if you're going to like donate to politicians or have some kind of huge impact on like our political culture, but he just gets to like sneak in through the back door yeah. with so much money, like ridiculous amount. I think at one and point he talked about when he moved into Paraguay, mm -hmm. he brought like $800 million or something like mm -hmm. through the country in like a year. Like that's I, not just like church money. That's long. Yeah. And I something. feel like the idea that like it doesn't matter that like has the effect of like allowing these ideas to like seep in even more. So it's just like what, like, I mean, over time, like, have you appreciated like the way that like these ideas that maybe you experience like within the church, like seeping out even more into the general like culture, especially like around esotericism and like just the general rise of like millenarianism, like the whole idea that like moon has been saying like, Oh, it's coming. It's coming for a long ass time. And now I feel like that stuff has really just charged to the fore in our popular discourse, like with, for instance, QAnon, which was mentioned before yeah. and everything like that. I would honestly, uh, I have very strong suspicions that QAnon is sort of like a continuation of sort of that Mooney sort of like going back to then actually, you know, like, what is it? Moral rearmament kind of thing. It's just the kind of this, like the next level, the next generation of that sort of same psychological warfare kind of thing. I was, there's actually this, this article uh, I was reading, I can send it to Dimitri at some point and the, uh, after we get off of here. Um, but it goes into sort of how QAnon is like sort of this astroturfing operation that also pushes like uh, a lot of this new age thought kind of stuff and uh, oh, yeah. as well as like alternate reality games sort of stuff. Um, yes. So I think at the end of the day, a lot of it is trying to distance people from their like material physical reality to kind of focus on maybe a spiritual afterlife kind of thing and prioritize that above physical life to the point where it kind of creates martyrs like it divorces you from reality to the point that you don't think that physical reality is worth anything near as much as whatever afterlife may be. It's very concerning. Cause I mean, now, I mean, like given the QAnon phenomena, I'd say that cults are not only able to influence you within your specific like domain of space time. Now that's just very broad. As long as you have like internet or access to some form of media or another you're able to access that like anywhere on the globe anytime you don't have to be in an insular community in person it just sort of expands that to sort of the next level of yeah like information and psychological warfare on just like a very mass scale yeah and That's i think so that true. knowing like how deep and how like historically rooted the influence on especially on the american right wing of the unification <laughs> church has been like really helps to put that in perspective because yeah, yeah like when you don't appreciate that like in some ways it can seem strange like how yeah we've witnessed like in real time like over the last couple of years we've seen QAnon like explode out of being basically like 
more or less a LARP on 4chan into being like, yeah, pretty much like a religious phenomenon, like yeah. a religious movement, you it know, is. which has many different expressions, like many, but that's like the primary character of it now. When before yeah. it was more about like, oh, there's this deep state operative, like now the dominant tenor of it is like Palladians and stuff like, you know, and like Trump yeah. is a walk-in or like something like that. And like, and there it goes again. Yeah. And it, it goes both ways like where like not only has like the sort of uh, new age idiom and the new age semiotics like seeped into that, you've seen the sort of QAnon paradigm, you know, this show like often talks about sort of esotericism and like the quote unquote new age or things like that. Yeah. And so like we're watching these like communities and like these discourses that like as they're evolving and as they're uh, churning on and like you've seen like how that in that group and those communities, like the QAnon framework has like seeped in and become like yeah. the mainstream thing and like the politics like of that like determine things you know like yeah like and they become sort of like the standard way to intercept politics like if you're in these kind of things so like you know if you're starting out like just being into crystals or astrology or whatever all of a sudden you're like you're getting all these political yeah. things yeah and the yeah. algorithms can feel yeah. that, that in too. like a huge way yeah and i would say that like I w yeah, no, okay, so I would say that, yeah, the methodology between sort of the Moonies and the QAnon thing is pretty incredibly similar. Um, like, a lot of just, like, yeah, just sort of that, how do I, I guess, how do I phrase this? Um, making people less concerned about physical reality and real life, sort of like a weaponized form of derealization, forcing people into this dissociative state that, or, you know, encouraging that as many ways as possible, um, to get people to divorce themselves from reality. Um, so because there are, you know, like maybe there are like, I mean, like I see a lot of stuff on the QAnon channels that like kind of goes directly back into sort of like the, uh, the I am movement, the Ballards, that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of stuff. Um, yeah. and like, there's real connections allegedly to, I, w I think I brought this up to you a few weeks ago. I chased down this lead and it ended up being like tangential, but I think I mentioned to you, there's a woman who's been accused by many people online of like being one of the authors of Q named Lisa Clapier. Mm -hmm. And like we, I think we talked about her previously in one of our Q episodes. Cause again, a, in a very weird coincidence, like I crossed paths with this woman years ago mm -hmm. during the Occupy movement. And she was like very heavily involved in it. And I was kind of more younger and naive and I was pissed at the banks and, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was participating in it and I kind of knew her and like near the end, she did a few things that I thought were like a little bit like weird. But overall, she just seemed kind of like a hippie L.A. like TV producer type woman that was into activism. Well, like fast forward, you know, X number of years, like I absolutely like never saw her again or whatever. And. Like I see something on Twitter saying like Lisa Clapier is Q. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what the fuck? And I look up and like she's gone apparently at some point in the mid 2010s, like went off in a totally wild direction of like I am inspired kind of new agey stuff yeah. and posting like about, you know, light and synchronicities and stuff. And then I think she got wrapped up with like Thomas Schellenberger who made like the Cicada 3301 ARG. And it's still very murky, like to what extent her real involvement is, or is she being kind of thrown out there as like a red herring, but she does seem to have connections. And then so I was doing a little bit of digging just to see like what else was she up to. I also found out that she was trying to get everybody that was shooting video at Occupy to upload all their video to this thing called like Citizen Global, which oh, is like no. some tech startup. Oh no. 
And everyone was kind of like, eh, we're just going to use YouTube or whatever. But she also, yeah, like, but she also like ran the main YouTube account. So like she was able to capture everybody's like shit that way. But yeah. then I remember like seeing a year or so after Occupy, Citizen Global uh, signed a contract with uh, the LA Sheriff's Department for yeah. like a new type of software where citizens, citizens could upload videos of like crimes like for a database that the cops could use and stuff. So it was yeah. like crowdsourcing. It was an early version of like, now we have like the citizen app that does that, but like yeah. it was like an early version of crowdsourcing video so cops could use it. And it's like, that's what you were doing this whole time at Occupy? Like what the, and then, and now you're like associating with these crazy QAnon right-wing infiltrator PSYOP people. And like, it's not clear to what extent you're involved, but I found a weird video where she popped up in the news in the Philippines in like, I don't know, 2017. And she just mentioned something offhand. It was some weird thing about how she was like meeting a grandmother she had never met, but she was like going to like a government building. For some reason, it was a news story in the Philippines. Like I couldn't understand why, but she mentioned that she was already going to the Philippines for uh, a conference put on by something called the HWPL, which stands for Heavenly Culture, World Peace, Restoration of Light. Mm. And mm -hmm. I knew like, I didn't know that much about the Moonies even when I read that, but I was like, hold up. That sounds like some Mooney shit. Like what? Yeah. So I, I ended up, I had to try, I told you there might be a weird Mooney connection to QAnon that I've like stumbled on. And it's not exactly Mooney, but this is still weird. So apparently this is a front much like a Mooney front, uh, HWPL, of the Shinchanji Christian Church okay. led by Liman He, which is a spiritual movement out of South Korea. And like this group, it's like when I was looking at them, I couldn't find any direct like links between them and the Moonies, but everything about them is exactly the same all the way up to like, oh, the person who writes QAnon posts is like a member, <laughs> you know, like, so she's doing right wing disinfo shit, just like Mooney offshoots would be doing. And they even have these strange foundations that have like, they have like dozens of foundations, yeah. like about like world peace, restoration of light festival. Exactly, and they're all about yeah. getting like religious leaders from around the world to like co-sign them. And they, you know, they go around to Africa and the Philippines. They got caught going to the UAE and like they got in some controversy like dealing with like the UAE government and stuff and also they became notorious in 2020 because the first COVID outbreak in South Korea was traced back to like a Shinchanji like church community mm -hmm. and they got a lot of crap for it and I think even the leader was thrown in prison for like spreading COVID like starting COVID yeah in, wow. which is I don't know what what to think about that but that's just like bizarre and of course they got a vice profile just like sean moon did yeah. you know around the same time and they everybody compares them to the moonies they're I, like these yeah. guys i mean these the language itself is just incredibly spot-on similar yeah yeah so they're around i mean they're kind of a big group they seem to be much more actually based in korea than uh, as opposed to like the unification church which now it's like biggest power base is in japan but actually yeah, I don't know. Oh, Lee did serve in the army during the Korean War. Um, so he does have some kind of military background. I don't know how old he is. Oh, he's 90 years old. So even almost the same age, like yeah. in the same kind of generation as Moon. 
and, you know, gets accused of being a cult and it's kind of controversial. But yeah, just to have like, how did, and, and I mean, Lisa Clapier is also like, I know she's interviewed like Barbara Marks Hubbard and like all of these kind of I am offshoot, yeah. like new age. Like if you li- read her language, it's very, it talks about light, 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 you know, just like love and light and like coming together and like blah, blah, blah. But there's like a sinister, weird undercurrent. And she's like playing kind of games with people on the internet and like, like seems like a chaos agent. So I don't know, but it seems like the the Unification Church maybe established a template that other churches have gone on to follow and they even even down to the mysterious like right-wing connections in America. Yeah. I mean, I would I would consider that uh, to a degree the truth. Like I don't know if it was the Moonies themselves that created this template or if it was intelligence agencies that were like this is how we're going and then it just sort That's- of propagated more widely but even like you were saying Falun Gong very similar like a lot of the same sort of like uh, front groups kind of stuff they've got their Shinyan uh, which is sort of like the little angels and then all their businesses and stuff and then of course that's a CAA cult Um, (laughs) and then the Epic Times yeah the Epoch Times speaking of that at the Rod of Iron Freedom Festival for Rod of Iron Ministries there was a guy I think uh, what is his name last name Loudon or something like that yeah, 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 Loudon. Times, but he was a guest there. That's very interesting because I've watched the rise of the Epoch, the Epoch Times yeah. over like the last like five or six. I remember when they used to be kind They're of like, like a the fringy, Washington Times of today. Like, they are, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but like the the, the level of, of 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 penetration they've been able to have over the last, despite being like a Falun Gong newspaper, you right. know, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, definitely. Definitely concerning, but also, I mean, like, yeah, there's a lot of precedent for that, and it just seems sort of like they changed whatever their favored newspaper may be. Uh, although, I mean, like, they still definitely use the Washington Times, even though it's maybe not necessarily under many hands right now. But well, I was going to yeah, ask about that. Cause, oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, because I just looked at the Freedom Festival lineup, and I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but they had like one of the editors of the Washington Times speaking yeah. at Sean Moon's festival. So uh, the lady, I forget what her name is, um, but mm-hmm. she's—I think she's speaking again this year. So I wonder about that because I was trying to look up like who literally owns the Washington Times right now. And it seems like the moon organization still does. They might. Honestly, I don't know. There might have. It's totally possible. And I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't say that that's not necessarily true. I thought I heard at some point like something about them selling it. But I don't know if they sold it to like a different person within the group or what um, there specifically. So I haven't looked into that as much as I maybe should. Yeah, no, it says, it does say that, it says it's, oh, okay, yeah, the Wikipedia says it was owned by News World Communications, but then it transferred at some point to Operations Holdings, which is also a part of the unification movement. But, like, I wonder about that because given the conflict now that has arisen between Hak Jahan Moon and Sean Moon, her son, again, there's, like, a mystery where it seems like they're almost in this like death battle with each other yeah. and you know, everyone's got to take sides. But then one of the, if, if the main line you see still owns the Washington times, it would seem a little curious that the editor would go to Sean Moon's freedom festival. Right. right? Yeah. I don't, I have a, I wonder stuff about that a lot. I wonder if it's just sort of like, I kind of wonder if the sect is just like specifically a ploy to sort of militarize people more, but it's not necessarily, I don't know how much I, so the sons are sort of like uh, Sean and a couple of his brothers are sort of like, you know, well-known for saying things like they want their mother dead, specifically beheaded. Um, Oh, wow. Right. And 
I would like to see how much of that is like, I, I would love to know how much of that is real versus how much of it is a show. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, they seem to have a significant amount of hatred for her, um, which I guess, you know, if she's still continuing the church when Sean was like crowned by Moon to be the whatever the the head of like the church mm-hmm. when Moon died, I, I it makes sense that he would be fucking pissed about it, whatever. But um, just like knowing the amount of people that sort of like, I mean, the Trump team and stuff, they we work with both of the sects pretty much or like both of those two sects. And I guess there may be a couple other sects here or there. Um, but okay. like, those are the main two. And there still seem to be like people working with both of them, which makes me wonder a little bit. And yeah. that's something to look into a bit more. I don't really know. Yeah. Cause we saw, I think, uh, call you found a video of Donald Trump speaking at yeah, the like nine yeah. 11 conference. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And just like praising moon. Yeah. Both. And I Hawk Jahan both, moon. Yeah, exactly. I think both of them, both. The, yeah. The this is for the universal peace yeah. federation, which is one of the many, many spinoff kind of organizations that, cause they don't really call themselves the unification church officially anymore. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a a few name changes over time because, you know, you got to, got to, you know, image manage or whatever. (laughs) Right. Right? I guess they're the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification. Is that what they're called now? Uh, Or is that also like an out of date name? I don't remember if that's a current one or not. They, yeah, well, I think that goes to the point of like that. Sometimes these like like fraction like uh, sorry factions and schisms that happen like within the group and like the sort of shifting identities. I mean, you know, as you said, there's like a million front organizations, a million spinoffs. Yeah. Like that's useful. Like that's very <laughs> consistent with like the you know sort of uh, intelligence function of these groups. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, keep it as confusing as possible so that people can't follow every avenue of like trafficking or like information warfare and can't all connect it together unless you know yeah and yeah and sheepdog people who want to leave you know make sure that like you can cover as much ground as possible so people can't like pin you down to one thing and be like oh this is associated with them but this is associated with this group oh is that the same as them like they hate them it's yeah exactly all the waters are like very muddied which yeah yeah, it's like literally a cia term but yeah. Yeah. yeah the, they even had like one of their acronyms. I'm, it's like I can't even memorize it because it's so nonsensical. But let me, it's like the IH, uh, the IIFWP. <laughs> right. What? Uh, you know, like who, who does that? You know, somebody who wants to hide things, I think. I don't know. Even yeah. sort of like the way that they name things and like, I don't know. Uh, just like, I don't know, you know, you think of all these government agencies, they use a bunch of fucking acronyms too. And then on top of that, it's like also like, uh, when they talk about like their fucking like where the place the leaders work or whatever in America and stuff, they call it headquarters. Like they're not hmm. subtle. Hmm. Yeah, one. It seems like, but like it sounded like the stories of the Washington Times were that you know maybe you would sort of be left to do your own thing, but from time to time, Bohepak would come around and like tell you what was up and like that, or he'd get a phone call from Moon. And then decide, okay, this is what we're doing, or you have to write something. I mean, even to the point where it got very interesting in the early 90s when Washington Times published like a glowing profile of Kim Il sung, mm-hmm. despite being like the ultimate right-wing newspaper that yeah. was like owned by Moon, because Moon was like right as the Soviet Union collapsed, Moon made his move to like ingratiate himself with Kim Il sung. Yeah. And so they had all these like conservative writers writing like, well, Kim actually is like, I mean, and like I would take issue with some of the like 
you know, the very anti like North Korea, like news in the West. But it's just funny to think of like the most right wing people ever being like, oh, Kim Il-sung is based actually. <laughs> like, which actually, <laughs> yeah. I, maybe that's even happening today a little bit. Yeah, could, I, mean, I think some alt right people might like ironically like North Korea, you know, because yeah. it's, I don't know. I need you everybody clap hands right now. Come on, putting the hands in the air. He's the best. Let's sing to the Lord. I want to thank the Universal Peace Federation Every breath and in particular, Dr. Hawk Jahan Moon, a tremendous person for her incredible work on behalf of peace all over the world. Her story of escaping from North Korea at five years old at the outset of the Korean War is an amazing example of the power of faith in Almighty God. I also want to thank her late husband, Reverend Moon, for founding the Washington Times, an organization for which I have tremendous respect and admiration. We must awake today because the same Messiah who is about to return among us may not return as you expected to return. So we must know the truth. And today, also, Christians must not become the victim or slave to the letter of the New Testament. Because God's will has not been changed. Therefore, for the same purpose, same fulfillment, the same Messiah must come. In other words, what I'm trying to say, the Messiah we are waiting for today is coming for the same purpose, same mission, who came 2,000 years ago among the chosen people. And that's the very reason I'm here. I don't know why, but God has chosen chosen me, and to be a channel of God, and I revealed to me many hidden truths of the Bible. I don't want to be against, I don't want to be persecuted, I want to be welcomed by the people, but I must tell the truth, because Jesus Christ appeared to me, told me the truth, and I was in a spiritual heaven, witnessed the truth. Even John the Baptist told me what was wrong with him. I knew the truth. It was proclaimed the kingdom of heaven in heaven already. It's the matter of time to reveal the honor. Oh, 
있으면 내가 저거를 반대할다들이 와가지고 내가 내딱들었다고 있는 이렇게 딱. When the Messiah returns once again as a fellow man in the flesh, many Christians will have a much difficulty to recognize him as the Lord. Meantime, those narrow-minded Christians will persecute him, throw the stone at him, and ridicule him, and even push him into the jail. However, Lord will not come to be only persecuted, only be crucified once again. Never, never. This time he comes for victory. When he comes for victory. And the third ever, that is the capacity, the Messiah's coming in our time. Then God sent upon him to bring the new nation, new family, new tribe, new nation, new world. And this will be a new order of the kingdom of heaven, and that day is now at hand. And upon the third Israel, we shall bring the kingdom of God upon the face of the earth. And we shall marching on toward that goal of heaven. Amen. <laughs>